this episode, Justice League America number 30 and Justice League Europe number 6. Cover dated September 1989. Welcome to the 30th episode of Justice League International Bwahaha Podcast, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. My name's the Irdumal Shag, and I'm your host, but I'm not doing this alone, thankfully. Every episode, we feature two different guest hosts to help me tackle a couple of issues of the JLI. Now, we'll chat with my second co-host a little bit later, but for now, my first co-host today is the very first female guest we've had on the show. It's unbelievable that it took this long. Not only is our guest a woman, she is also a certified smart person. Well, saying she's a woman and smart might be redundant, but seriously, she's got a PhD in English and has delivered several papers on gender issues within superhero comics. She's a college professor and a dean, and I'm pretty sure she's here to put Wally West on double-secret probation. Folks, please help me welcome Dr. Jennifer Swartz-Levine. Welcome to the New York Embassy, Dr. Swartz-Levine. Thanks for being here. How are you doing? Well, hello, Shag, and thank you for having me. This is wonderful. The embassy looks a lot better than it did on moving day. So. <laughs> We've done a few improvements, yeah. I yeah. think so. Oberon's got things well in hand. I am so excited to have you here. You and I corresponded, like, I don't know, a year and a half ago or something like Yes, yeah, it's you, been a while. You wrote into the show, and I was just stunned when you started telling me some of the things you've done and your credentials and <laughs> your, your smartness. I mean, you know, I, I'm just some <laughs> schmuck who's got a microphone and likes comic books, and here you're a smart person and everything who, you know, legitimately looked at these things from an objective level. I'm so excited to have these conversations. Uh, well, I'm looking forward to it as well, and I mean, I also adore comic books, and I uh, actually have taught a course on Superman for a number of years at my college, and uh, I was just thrilled when Chuck Coletta from Bowling Green State University recommended of the podcast to me, and I've been on board pretty much since episode one. Oh, fantastic. And Chuck's such a good friend of the network. Then, oh, uh, he is I, fantastic. I hope you're listening, Chuck. Thank you so much for bringing us together. Yes. So you taught a class on Superman, so you're able to bring the comic books and graphic novels into the classroom? Yes, absolutely. Because, of course, Superman was created by two local Cleveland teenagers, you know, that uh, grew up in Glenville, Ohio. Yeah. And where I teach at Lake Erie College is in Painesville, Ohio, which is about half an hour outside of Cleveland. So given that connection and Superman's legacy in Cleveland, I had the opportunity several years ago to create a course on that and I've had a lot of wonderful students in that class over the years and we do a lot of cool field trips we actually are able to see the outside of the house where Jerry Siegel grew up and uh, Superman's legacy is really being celebrated in Cleveland and I'm glad to be part of that that's fantastic I, I, I dare to go say as far as uh, Cleveland rocks for that perspective it really absolutely does yeah and we were actually lucky enough a couple of years ago that we met Mark Wade at the uh, Three Rivers Comic Con that was uh, held in sort of the Pittsburgh area, and I used to teach Kingdom Come as part of this class, oh. and got Mark to sign my teaching copy, and in the course of conversation, he said, that's it, I'm coming to visit your class, and Mark came to talk to my class a couple of years ago, no so it, way. it was amazing, it really was. He was very generous with his time, he gave like a public lecture, he did a special lecture for my class, it was a lot of fun, life takes you some interesting places sometimes. That is amazing, that is it so It really cool. was terrific. He's been a fantastic supporter of the class. Uh, well, I know we've got more to talk about with the educational component of the comic books and uh, the papers you delivered. So I want to save that for just a second. Right now, let's go ahead and do the corporate shilling, and then we'll come okay. right into that. So, folks, this episode of the JLI Podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. Now, each episode,
episode, we're going to select a collected edition or two to briefly discuss from the InStock Trades library. Usually it's tied into this month's JLI issue in some shape or form. Uh, my pick this time is Aquaman Trade Paperback by Peter David, Book 2. Now, you might be kind of scratching your head on Aquaman. However, this actually ties in with what we're going to talk about when we get to Justice League Europe, because Major Disaster is featured in that issue, and in this Aquaman Trade Paperback, issue number 14, was this fantastic, possibly the best Major Disaster story ever told, which was part of the Underworld Unleashed story. So, this uh, collected edition collects Aquaman's number 9 through 20 and annual number 1, again, written by Peter David, fantastic art by Marty Eglund, Jim Califor, and Joe St. Pierre. Page counts 344 pages. Now, for me, personally, my Aquaman is this version of Aquaman. I love the long hair bedraggled and the hook hand and all that <laughs> stuff. It makes me so happy. I know it's 90s, but it's awesome. <laughs> so, folks, uh, it go, normally retails for $29.99. You can get it on in-stock trades right now for 42% off and get it for $17.39. Now, Dr. Schwartz-Levine, did you happen to bring a selection? Not that you had to. I mean, pretty much everyone does. The cool kids do. But did you happen to pick a selection? Well, first of all, Shag, please call me Jenny. And yes, I did. The Ooh. college professor did her homework. <laughs> so, all right. So my in-stock trade pick is the Female Furies trade paperback by uh, Cecil Castellucci and Adriana Mello. The cover art of this trade paperback is by Joelle Jones. It collects Female Furies numbers one through six, plus Jack Kirby's Mr. Miracle number nine, hmm. which, as the description of the trade paperback indicates, is the issue that inspired this series. It's 144 pages long. It was $16.99. The in-stock trade price is $9.85, so you save 42%. You know, I never even heard of this trade, and I guess it just came out. It just came out, yes. Yeah. So that's that's part of why it was my pick, and also given that we're going to be doing a lot of talking, I think probably about Big Barda, we need ourselves a Female Furies pick, I think, to be part of this episode. Totally agree, and I'm glad to see Barda getting some representation out there nowadays in the comics. That's fantastic. Yes, absolutely. For these and all your trade paperback needs, folks, please visit InStockTrades.com. Now, also, this episode is sponsored in part by your Patreon support, folks. Running the Fire and Water Podcast Network with so many shows uh, takes a lot of like online hosting and service fees and things like that. Now, for the past three years, us hosts have absorbed those costs, but it's really, really grown considerably recently. So, in order to sort of offset those expenses, we launched a Patreon for the network. And if you're enjoying the JLI podcast, the best way to support the show is by visiting patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Please consider supporting the Fire and Water Podcast Network. We sincerely appreciate everyone's support, including folks like Bill from the Bat Pod, Chris Lewis, Devin Clancy, Martin Gray, Max Traver, Rudy Castillo, Sean Ross, Tim Price, David Gutierrez, and Gord Tolton. All those folks supported the network and uh, asked to be recognized on the JLI podcast. So again, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash fwpodcast. Now, all the corporate chilling out of the way here. Fantastic. <laughs> Let's start talking to you here. Tell me, what is your personal origin story with the JLI? How did you find the book? How did you find it? How did you fall in love with it? I, well, actually, I kind of am a little bit of a latecomer to the book than uh, some of your other guests have been. I didn't come to this until a few years ago after my husband and I got married. So my husband and I, Tim, had been house hunting for months. We wound up closing on our house 10 days before our wedding, oh, which geez. made <laughs> right, which made moving into the house uh, an interesting sort of time-compressed process. You, you, had, and you had your own moving day special, it sounds like. We, we actually did have our very own moving day special. We should have. <laughs> and um, Tim has been collecting comic books since he was a 12-year-old boy in the summer of 1989. And so he has a lot of comic books that he brought to the marriage. And as we were kind of combining our collections, we decided that we were going to rebag, refile, you know, get everything set up for the comic book room that we have in our basement. And as I was sitting... You, on, you did all of this in preparation as you're getting ready to get married? Well, we got married and then probably the first two and a half, three weeks, a little... 
yeah, probably a little bit longer after we got married. That was how we spent sort of our early marriage was sitting on our basement floor, like bagging and collating comics. I, I see that <laughs> as like the ultimate marriage test to a nerd to see if the marriage is going to work or not. And clearly you passed. So that's fantastic. We, we did. It is. So it's working all these years later. So as I was sitting on the floor working on one group of comics, I happened to pick up a Justice League comic and I said to Tim, what's this? Because I loved the cover and he happened to have the trade. He went and got me the trade and instead of bagging comics, I sat there and read a whole lot of Justice League and Justice League International comics. And here we are. <laughs> we owe a huge debt of gratitude to Tim then. Thank you. Yes. Wow, yes. that's Go fantastic. <laughs> so was there a particular period of the JLI era that you fell in love with? It was this sort of the Justice League International. That was sort of my, I, I mean, you know, I'd grown up as a kid, you know, sort of loving superpowers and super friends and all of that good stuff. So I, I knew a lot of these characters, but, you know, I grew up in a little town that they got a stoplight after I left for college. So um, <laughs> comic book stores were not rife on the ground here in the little northeast Ohio where we live. So a lot of this was, uh, you know, when I got to college and then when I, you know, I mean, sort of my first real getting into comics was Watchmen. Mm, and uh, wow. there's an introduction. That's a deep end. Yeah. <laughs> it, it kind of was. Jumped right off there. But as far as the Justice League comics, it was sitting on the floor and picking up those Justice League International comics and been reading them ever since. So love them. And this is my absolutely my favorite era of the comic because how can you not love the Bwahaha stuff? That's so good. It's so good. I, it I'm a little is. biased, admittedly. But yes. So here's some really fascinating things about Jenny, folks. When she wrote me, <laughs> she told me she had delivered papers at conferences about the Justice League International and gender issues. It blew my mind. <laughs> Okay, so we got to talk about this. I know we got to. I know we need to get and talk about a comic book and issue. Whatever, I don't really care. I'm here for this. This is what I'm here for, folks. So, because we've talked a lot in the preceding episodes about the gender issues in this book and some of the skeevy guys and some of the costumes and things like that. You know what? I'm gonna maybe turn it over to you. I don't know. So you tell me. So you this tells. Tell me about the first paper you wrote. Well, I think probably the first one I did was uh, I did a paper called Bwahaha, the Diet Soda Retcon, the 99% Calorie Free Solution to Sexism and Justice League Europe. <laughs> Which that one was at the uh, Bowling Green State University, which is sort of like the epicenter of pop culture studies in the United States. If you have never been to their pop culture library, Shag, you need to get there. It is really? amazing. Wow. Okay. It is. It truly. It is. It is. I think probably the greatest resource in the world. Of they have comic books. They have scripts from old television shows. I mean, just wandering through their archives was an incredible experience. And every year they have a uh, pop culture conference that is named after Ray Brown, who founded the Pop Culture Library and Pop Culture Studies at Bowling Green. And one of the things that I, I was fascinated by as I was reading Justice League Europe, to, to me at least sort of more the, the gender issues are kind of pointed up even more there than they are in sort of the, the main Justice League book. Mm. Because, I mean, you know, the, the whole bit about Power Girl becoming witchier, as they call her, because of her diet soda obsession. Crazy. And, right, exactly. And then sort of there's this whole thing that Dr. Light does about how diet soda and sort of the food additives in diet soda only affect female physiology, right? So the men, I guess, can sort of like swig diet pop as much as they want. And and Dr. Light knows all of this because she'd had a similar problem years ago and her doctor had figured out what the problem was. So as I was reading all of that, it was both hilarious and, and troubling to me in some ways as well because, I mean, I think in some ways it was an attempt to make Power Girl less abrasive than she had been sort of running up to that you know point in the comic. But, oh, it was kind of a heavy-handed way to go about it. Yeah. 
so there was that, and then... Now, d- just for clarification, when did that actually happen in the series? Was that after uh, the Demetrius era? Yeah, that was when Gerard Jones kind of came in, too. Okay, well, that's a whole different ball of wax there. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yes. I mean, because obviously there are significant problems with him in the last few years in the news as well. Yeah. But yeah, so that was after the Giffen Dimatteis stuff. But part of what I also love about sort of gender issues that I think uh, are playing out in, in the Giffen Dimatteis title with the Justice League title is uh, I also did a paper um, called How Big of a Bee Was Barda? Uh, <laughs> you know, feminism as a Foil in the Giffen Dimatteis Justice League at the Midwest Pop Culture Association Conference a couple of years ago. And the, part of the thing that I really love about Barda is that she wants to be both a housewife and a warrior and sort of having a foot in those two worlds it gets played for laughs a lot and I think it's a lot of fun but because she kind of has sort of these these shifts in identity in some ways she's not as successful in either realm as she might be right I mean because we get sort of all the running jokes about you know I mean she puts uh, mayonnaise in her lasagna and then there's also something I think in sort of like the Mr. Miracle title about how she puts mayonnaise in her pancakes Uh, and and some of the who's who specifically say like her her cooking is a deadly weapon yeah exactly exactly so I mean there's all of that and then but I fell in love with Barda when I saw her in the kitchen yelling at Scott on the phone while she was wearing the bunny slippers. I mean, that was my moment with Barda. So I really love her as a character, and I am so thrilled that we get to talk about her today uh, here in issue number 30. And she is fantastic. And they went beyond just the Justice League series, and they developed her in the Happy Homemaker sort of role a lot more in the the Mr. Miracle series as well. They absolutely did, yeah. And the way I always kind of viewed it, she saw it as another problem to conquer because she's a hardened warrior, and she's not going to give up a fight and so her being the happy homemaker she just sees it as another battle to win and I never really thought about until you said this that she doesn't really win that fight and that's troubling to me I mean I realize they're going for laughs I mean the whole series is for for jokes but is that problematic and and, and I'm asking Jenny here folks because as I told her off air I'm not exactly the smartest guy in the world (laughs) I am not terribly enlightened I try to be I try to notice things and I try to bring them up in the show but when at the end of the day I'm kind of a stupid person who's looking at comic books and going "Mm, wow she's wearing a skimpy costume so I'm not too bright. So help me, Obi-Wan. Uh, <laughs> help me understand some of the issues going on here, please. Actually, I think you're a lot more enlightened and smarter than you give yourself credit for, Shag. You oh, really please. are. Can you tell my wife? <laughs> <laughs> Well, because because you kind of have identified sort of the, the, the issues that Bart is facing is that, you know, and I think that in a lot of ways, this is reflective. And again, I am but one woman sort of speaking from my own perspective. But I think that these are a lot of issues that women face in their lives. I mean, you know, here we are as, you know, as Barta is, as a wife, as a homemaker. I mean, later on as a mother, she also has a very demanding job. You know, so how do you define yourself in terms of your career, in terms of who you are at home? in terms of responsibility to your family, you know, and is there a way to, I mean, it gets all the way back to, you know, what Betty Friedan was talking about, the feminine mystique in like 1963. You know, she said, is this all? It's sort of like one of the famous quotes from the feminist mystique. And, you know, then when you get into, I mean, if you look at sort of the first issue of Ms. Magazine that came out, there was Wonder Woman on the cover mm-hmm. that was, you know, the whole Wonder Woman of her president. I mean, you know, I think that in a lot of ways, this really points up sort of almost these split identities that many women have, but I imagine many men do too. You know, how do you do all of these multiplicities of jobs that we have and how do you do them well and successfully? And I think that Giffen and DiMatteis do a wonderful job in this series, kind of 
kind of looking at those issues and seeing how both BARDA has both great success in some realms and great failures in others. And sometimes it's all in the same day, you know? Hmm. I do notice in the series, like especially in the, the previous issue where the members defer to her recognizing yes. her strengths, uh, not just Absolutely. physical, but her battle hardened, her training. They recognize her value in her role. So that, I guess to me, that sort of jumped out. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess I go back to the homemaker stuff. So her being a failure as a homemaker, do you think that's just an extension of the jokes or do you think, you know, unintended consequence? Or do you think that was something they were trying to show maybe? You know, I think in some ways, at least, at least from my perspective, I kind of think in some ways it's an extension of the jokes because, you know, let's face it, Barta didn't really learn how to be a happy homemaker uh, in, on Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. That's certainly not what was happening under Granny Goodness's tutelage. And, and so here she is as she and Scott are trying to form this new life. And he's not much better at it either. I mean, if you look at some of the things that's happening when he's trying to put together the grill, I mean, mm-hmm. he's failing miserably. <laughs> um, so, and then winds up opening the Mr. Fix-It shop, you know, over in his own title. Neither one of them really succeed, but I think that in some ways, particularly the way that Booster and Beetle interact with Barda, mm-hmm. you know, when they're talking about how she's all woman, but they also don't understand how Scott can be married to her, and I think it's, I can't remember which one of the two of them it is, that, or says to the other one about how in some ways Barda's like a truck driver, right? Hmm. And then when they finally get a look at her, they're like, oh, we get it now, you know, because she's, you know, tall and imposing and hot, and, but at the same time, they don't see her because she's not. It's sort of like this stereotypical feminine 50s housewife, which I think is, you know, sort of what the cultural expectation was, mm-hmm. you know, in some ways, or is what Gifton and DiMatteis were kind of pushing back against and playing with. When you brought up Beetle and Booster, you just reminded me of something, too. You know, we're, we're talking exclusively about what's happened to Barty here, but truthfully, most of the members of the teams are sort of failures in whatever they try to do. Oh, yeah. So, they absolutely are. So maybe it's not a gender-specific thing going on here, because uh, Boodle... Be, uh, I always call him Boodle. Uh, Beaster, <laughs> Booster and Beetle. Jeez, that's hard to say. Uh, they, Beaster. I like that, right? too. <laughs> We're shipping them. They, uh, <laughs> they, they, they screw up all the time. You know, Martian Manhunter, things don't typically go his way either. So most of the – Captain Adam, nothing goes his way. No. So I guess to some extent, it's kind of an everybody issue. It absolutely is. And I think that that's kind of why it works so well. Because while it's true that I'm looking at the gender stuff, because it particularly affects – you know, I mean, Bart has got, you know, sort of the, the – one foot, you know, in sort of career with the JLI and then one foot in the home setting where we don't necessarily always see all of the male characters not having success in sort of their home setting, although Booster and Beatles certainly have trouble with the ladies. Um, <laughs> in a lot of ways, you're absolutely right. Part of why this series, I think, works so well and is so fun is because they're not perfect and they all screw stuff up all the time. You know, I mean... Sort of like life. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly it. Plus, there's also lots of jokes and it's a lot of fun, so... Yeah. Now, I think it is probably fair to say that Power Girl does seem to be not treated appropriately in the series. You, you mentioned there's more of it going on over in Je- Justice League Europe. Yes. So the, the witchiness, I guess, I, oof, that term, it, you, you see it building in some of the early Justice League Europe issues where we right. are right now. Because I'm just rereading this for the first time in 30 years. Yes. So I, I haven't right. read ahead. Right. But I do remember she gets much more aggressive and caustic as the series goes on. She absolutely does. And I do think that sort of like that diet soda thing, was there a temp- to dial that back a lot, right? Yeah. But it, it landed with kind of a thud for me. This first conversation first starts happening when Power Girl and Crimson Fox and Dr. Light are sort of all trying on costumes. They're all in the 
room alone together and it's there's various poses and it's it's got a little you know sort of cheesecake factor to it mm-hmm. which is fine but you know there's sort of all of this discussion then about how she's become more witchy and then as this plays out too she says things about how she's been drinking this diet soda to keep her body you know sort of fat free and she says that she's trying to keep her body trim and fatless trying to live up to some male ideal of the female body she says i've been making myself insane so i mean she's positioning herself here as though somehow or another not only is she being witchy because of her diet soda consumption but this is all because she's trying to keep herself thin so that men will find her attractive and that's where it gets a little weird and hairy for me first off it's it sounds like it's sort of a the writer's road to hell's paved with good intentions like they were that's exactly what it is yes i think that's what it was it sounds like what he was trying to say was that there's an unfair standard in our culture right. that, that are, is applied to women as far as appearance right. goes but right. it doesn't sound like he delivered it very well that way no i, I think it landed a little weird but like you said road to hell absolutely is paved with good intentions and i think that that's absolutely what was going on here but to me it, it just didn't work so well and again i think part of it also is some of the time period as well i mean we i think that we think about these kinds of issues a lot more overtly now than we perhaps did in the you know like the 80s and the 90s certainly back then they just assumed all the readers were boys that's exactly what it was you yeah. know so because of that as we're looking at like something that like literary studies calls the male gaze and i mean you see it in film studies and everything mm-hmm. i think that so much of it's positioned through that mm-hmm. and they were trying they were really trying and it didn't work quite as successfully as perhaps they'd hoped but it gives us a lot to talk about exactly so. and let's let's follow that sort of path where we talk about the male's behavior and the male the way they react to the female character so we've talked yes. a lot on this show so far about booster gold and beetle and yes. their behavior towards women so yes. i'm going to put the question to you okay. are they harmless incorrigible flirts or are they actually misogynist pigs or somewhere in between? You know, to me, I, at least, and again, one woman, one reader, one perspective, I kind of think of them as just sort of harmless, incorrigible flirts. And for me, kind of the difference between them and as we look at Flash and JLE. Oh, oh Wally. Oh, Wally. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Wally's, Wally, I think, is kind of different. And it's sort of sad the way I think that he's being written in JLE because that's that's not who he really is, I don't think. No, uh, he's not. But, you know, Booster and Beetle, they have an appreciation, I think, for women just in in general, and it's not just that they're looking at them as sexual objects, and you know, I mean, they absolutely are attracted to all of the women that they they are flirting with. Mm-hmm. But I think that they recognize and realize that these women are smart and have brains, and that they're actual people, you know. And I mean, you know, when you look at Booster and Beetle, and I mean, when they first run into Catherine Colbert, and nice. uh, <laughs> and and of course, Beetle's having a marvelous time that Booster just crashed and burned, right? Right, right. And Booster winds up being really embarrassed by the fact that he crashes and burns especially the more that he gets to know Catherine. And it's like, oh, she's so smart. And oh, crap, you know, mm-hmm. you know, but with Wally, all it is is about it just literally from the first words out of his mouth in JLE. It's all about how attractive he finds these women. It's almost about what they can do for him mm-hmm. as sex objects rather than, you know, these being interested women that, that he might want to get to know and have a relationship with. And I mean, it's a serial thing. I mean, you know, it's I mean, it's Power Girl. It's Wonder Woman. I mean, a couple issues later, it's it's the woman on the plane that's yep. serving drinks. I mean, you know, it's just, if you're female, you'll do, you know? I would agree with that. Whereas with Beetle and Booster, you know, when they flirt with someone and they get shot down, they pretty much move on. Yeah, they absolutely do. Flash isn't responding. Because, no. because my philosophy has always been, 
there's no harm. Yeah, well, if you're single and whatever, uh, flirting right. with somebody else, and if they or exactly. asking him out or whatever, and if they right. say no, you know what happened? You move on. But exactly. Flash refuses to give up. I mean, it's it's to the point where I think at least, I and mean, we're talking because they're on a team, they're on an organized, you know, or like workplace right. environment. This is sexual harassment, is what it, oh, seems it absolutely like is. Yeah. yeah, I think so. And I mean, you know, it's, it's if they had an HR department, I, I absolutely <laughs> think the Power Girl should be going there. Yeah. But yeah, because you're absolutely right. I mean, Booster and Beetle, they give it a shot, and if they're unsuccessful, they move on, and you know, they they don't think terrible things about the woman either. It's not like that's well, true. That's a good that point. Bitch. Yeah. So they just move on, and Wally doesn't know when to quit. Yeah, I, I'm hoping so. as we go through the Just League Europe issues, we'll see a change in Wally. I don't know that we will. Yes. Um, yeah. Certainly, Mark Wade uh, and, and yes. even Bill Messner Loeb's did not write Wally that way. And, no. And, and a lot of times, what we see is there's there's there is a wahaha lens that they take these characters yes. through. They say, yes. all right, this is our character now for this book, and we're trying mm-hmm. to get a certain point across. And as horrible as Wally is, I'm not defending him, folks, but there are no. people like that in the world. Oh, there so absolutely are. having, you know, he's sort of a Guy Gardner-like character. You know, it's the jerk who's in on the team, or if you work in an office, there's a jerk who works in your office who you can't get rid of, but you got to work with him kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's sort of where, for me at least, sort of the Wally and Guy departure are. Even when Guy is, you know, sort of back to his usual self, but not sort of having been bonked on the head, <laughs> um, there are moments of sweetness. I mean, he's cranky and irascible and, you know, really difficult to get along with, but you still get the sense that he really cares about his teammates. I agree with that. I, I do think there's still some sexual harassment going on from him. Uh, yeah, there is. There absolutely is. I mean, you don't take Ice out on that particular date to that particular movie. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, so, I mean, Ice could go to HR as well. But with The Flash, it's just constant. I mean, at least in these early issues, there's not a whole lot of a redemption arc for him very early on, I don't think. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Now, I got one more question here about okay. the treatment of female characters. And the, the word agency comes up a lot in mm-hmm. these discussions. Yes. And do you feel like, and I know we're going to talk about it specifically to this issue, but in general, do you think the female characters are given enough agency and represented fairly? And I'm thinking, you know, immediately of like Barda, Fire, Ice, Power right. Girl, anyone like, uh, even Black Canary in the early issues. It, yeah, you know, I would say that absolutely, yes. I mean, it, it waxes and wanes, of course, but, you know, I think that they really are. I mean, looking at Fire and Ice, I mean, they absolutely, you know, they go in, they sort of insert themselves into the Justice League, they, mm-hmm. they sort of get themselves jobs there, and they're very much, and I think all of the women that we encounter sort of as characters through here, by and large, you very much get a sense that they're attempting to shape their own destiny just as much as the male characters. And, you know, so I don't think that anybody's necessarily been entirely stripped of agency or is subjugated in any way. You know, I think that some of the characters might try it, but the female characters push back and and therein lies some of the humor, you know. Okay. Well, this has been fascinating. I'm telling you. Well, this I'm, has been a lot of fun. I've been so excited to have this part of the conversation. Now, we're going to talk more <laughs> about this as we get into the issue, which, which we should probably do. We probably ought to, yes. <laughs> but so as we get to those points, we will definitely touch on them. So, folks, just as you are going through this, please remember, go out to our website, just firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments there. I want to hear your thoughts on all these issues we've been discussing and this particular issue itself. I want to open this discussion to the world. So please, please get involved or go on the Internet. Uh, and, well, I guess you are on the Internet if you're on our website. <laughs> but go on the social medias. Go out to your Facebooks and Twitters and such. Find Just League International Blahaha Podcast and share your thoughts there as well. Use our hashtag, Pound FW Podcast. Now, as we go through this comic, if you want to see some of the 
the images, it will be on our website, which I've mentioned already. There will be a gallery post where you'll be able to see some of the images there. And we are going to be talking about Justice League America number 30. And the shocking thing is, this is actually the halfway point of the Giffen DiMatteis run. Uh, I didn't realize that till this morning I was getting ready. Giffen and DiMatteis are off the book with issue 60. So wow. now the podcast isn't halfway over because there's a lot of specials and quarterlies and all these things that come out that, that'll fill up a lot more episodes. But the, the, the actual main book is halfway done, which is just shocking. It doesn't feel like it should be there already. But So this was published by DC Comics. Cover date was September 1989, and it was on the shelves July 18th, 1989. Now that's important, people, because the world is divided into things that happened before the 1989 Batman movie and things that happened after the 1989 Batman movie. And this was the first issue of JLI that was published after the movie came out. So this is a whole new world, people. I'm just saying. <laughs> Cover price is $1 for Shiny Quarters, covered by Kevin McGuire and Joe Rubenstein. Jenny, would you care to describe the cover for us? Absolutely. The cover foregrounds the teenage biker punk who stole Barter's car and Mega Rod in the last issue. And if there's any doubt that we're supposed to know he's a punk, he has a, both a nose ring and a sneer. <laughs> Reflected in his mirrored shades are his hands on the Mega Rod, and members of the Justice League, Mr. Miracle, Barda, and Fire, and then also the Huntress, are all posed in various stages of consternation. And Mr. Miracle has his arms extended, waving at the bad guy, attempting to persuade him to drop the Mega Rod. So, and I've got a question for you, Shag, actually. Is this the first cover where the bad guy is kind of foregrounded and the JLI members aren't? I was going back through old covers and it looked to me like, other than Justice League number four, where there's like legs that are framing Booster, I kind of think it might be. I don't know what to make of that, but it seems interesting. I, I had to go back and look myself because uh, thankfully I, I saw that question was coming. So I, I couldn't think of any myself, but I did find a few that sort of qualify. The covers okay. of number 15 and 20 both feature Magnacon, and he right. Is the four image the here uh, yes. in one he's sort of holding up Mr. Miracle just like uh, unconscious in another one the heroes are all on monitors behind him so that oh, one I think would yeah, definitely yeah, yeah, qualify yeah. annual number two has the Joker on the cover okay and the Joker's definitely yes. the central focus and he's holding yes, playing absolutely. cards of the characters and then on uh, number twenty three the heroes aren't even on the cover at all it's just the Injustice League right exactly yep yeah, so but That's I I, I think if you if you go by the strict definition of what you said with the with the villain in the foreground and the heroes in the background it's probably just two this one and the one with MagnaCon and the monitor behind it. Right, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I missed the MagnaCon one. It's definitely an um, uh, interesting technique. It, it, it makes it jump out, and you definitely see the, the heroes on the back foot. Yes, yes, which, I mean, is kind of where they are for a good chunk of this issue, so it certainly sets things up quite nicely. That's a good point. Now, here's I have a question for you. It's more of a joke, but do you think McGuire got a discounted pay rate for drawing this cover <laughs> because one-sixth of the cover is just a photocopy of the other? <laughs> and what I mean, folks, is the mirrored shades, the images of the team is repeated in each shade. I'm like, well, he didn't draw that twice. no. No, because it's the exact same thing in each one. But yeah, I, I mean, I hope he got paid the full rate, but it's a good question. So. <laughs> and uh, just to be completely crude, when you were reading your description and you talked about the punk holding his mega rod, uh, it made me think of <laughs> something else completely different and that I just now can't get out of my head. But <laughs> Sorry. Anyway, uh, I do think it's clever the way they use the mirror shades on the cover. But other than that, it's it's sort of – the cover's sort of simple. I mean, even the characters aren't – like, if, if you showed me the characters, the Justice League characters, I wouldn't necessarily know this is a Maguire cover. I think the punk, you can see some some of the trademarks of Maguire. But the the characters, it's, it's sort of a simple cover. Not that that's a bad thing. I don't know. Just jumped out of me like that. Yeah, totally agree. All right, let's get into this thing. The plot is by Keith Giffen, script by J.M.D. Mateus. Penciler is Bill Willingham. Yes, the Bill Willingham of Fables. 
folks. Inker is Joe Rubenstein. Letter is Bob LaPan. Colorist is Gene D'Angelo. Assistant editor is Kevin Dooley. And the editor is Andy the Helfer, as he's listed there. <laughs> so uh, do you want to take us through Teenage Biker Megadeth? All right. As the pages of Teenage Biker Megadeth open, the Teenage Biker has incapacitated Barda and Fire. Mr. Miracle implores the Teenage Biker to put down the Mega Rod, but he refuses, even though Mr. Miracle explains that the rod was made on Apocalypse and is very powerful and very dangerous. Ignoring him, the teenage biker teleports away from Mr. Miracle. We then cut to the Huntress, who is perched atop a building, where she sees an explosion and goes to investigate. Meanwhile, the teenage biker has killed his friends, who have made fun of his powers. He is being increasingly overtaken by the dark forces of Apocalypse, as he starts praising Darkseid, threatening New Genesis, and wanting to kill his enemies. He realizes that he's losing himself, since he doesn't know who or what Darkseid or New Genesis is, but the voice and mind control from the Megarod is too strong for him to overcome. Huntress arrives and tries to stop him, but is repelled by the teenage biker in the Megarod. And having recovered, Barda, Fire, and Mr. Miracle are following the mother box to find the teenage biker. We then see Oberon at the embassy, fielding uh, what he believes to be a prank call from someone pretending to be the mayor of New York, sounds the alarm about a super punk with a magic wand decimating the South Bronx. And back in the South Bronx, the teenage biker continues his rampage, having killed 12 police people, and Mr. Miracle, Barda, and Fire began formulating a plan to stop him. Until we got to your half of the recap, I didn't realize the teenage biker never got a name. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> All right, so I'll pick up from there. So Mr. Okay. Miracle, Big Bardo, once again confront the teenage biker, but he overwhelms them and blasts them unconscious. Then Fire meets Huntress, who's been hiding in the shadows, and Huntress has a plan. The Mega Rod is sapping the life energy from the punk, causing him to waste away into this desiccated husk. And Fire confronts him next. She discovers, uh, while she's doing this, that her new flaming form doesn't actually have a physical body. But the punk still manages to knock her out. This distracts the punk long enough for Huntress and Mr. Miracle to swoop in and shoot the punk with crossbow bolts. An arrow punctures his right arm, causing him to drop the Mega Rod. And the rod lands controlled side down. Click presses the button and causes a powerful blast that fires into the punk's face, killing him. Now, Mr. Miracle is angry because he wanted to save the kid from the control of the Mega Rod, whereas the Huntress just gives this sly smile to the camera about the punk's demise. Later, Mr. Miracle convinces Maxwell Lord to give Huntress a try in the league. At Helena Bertinelli's apartment, she rejects Max's offer to join the Justice League, so Max uses his mental control power to psychically push her into agreeing to join the league. Whoa! Way to go, Max. Uh, Max cheerfully dabs at his bloody nose, thinking he needs to get himself some red handkerchiefs. Next issue, it says, a new artist, the same old writers and inker. All this plus the first part of the first semi-annual four-part JLA-JLE crossover. Confused? Welcome to the club. That's a lot of text there. Okay. So, Jenny, let's let's start off with you. What did you think of the issue? Well, I enjoyed it quite a lot. I thought it was a great follow-up to the previous issue, but to me, at least, this one wasn't as funny as we've kind of come to expect from the Justice League. There's actually a lot of sad that's happening here. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, the teenage biker's gotten himself into what becomes a fatal situation when he's really just a small time street gang member who seems to be kind of young. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, what's happening here, at least to me, seems like it's somewhat Barda's fault because... She shouldn't have left her weapon in the car. Hmm. Okay. Well, you know, I mean, if you know anybody in the military, you know, one of the, you know, or anyone, uh. you know, the police, you know, some of their training that they get sort of ingrained early on is that you don't leave your weapon unattended. That's a good point. Okay. And she's got to play clean up or at least try to play clean up for something that in a lot of ways, you know, and I mean, this is still New York in the 80s. I mean, it was, you know, sort of before things got cleaned up in the way that it did uh, that they have since then. So she's gotten to have her rod stolen. Everything that's happened to the teenage biker traces back to bar 
Florida. And in a lot of ways, she's almost looking at this from sort of a gender perspective, too. She's kind of put down a lot of what is the symbol of her female fury power. I mean, she's left the mega rod as she goes to train fire in other kinds of ways. But I mean, you know, sort of the, I mean, the, the thing that we really associate with Bart in a lot of ways is that mega rod. And she just abandons it in the trunk, which I thought was a little weird. Interesting. I hadn't thought about that. You know, I, I wasn't with you until you brought up the part about the military and the police are trained to not leave their weapons lying around. So that, that yeah. you, you got me there. That's a good point. Okay. <laughs> You know, and, and one of the other things I found really, really kind of sad about this is, and I think is really important also, is that we see, it points up to me at least how much training Barter has had to have to control the powers of the Megarod. Because, I mean, it just decimates the teenage biker. I mean, and, and Mr. Miracle says to him that you have to have a ton of training in order to be able to control it. It really illustrates to me sort of Barter's like superb levels of training and the intentionality that she has is she's able to kind of control the powers of the Megarod and use those powers for good. I completely agree, and I don't remember them ever introducing this. I mean, if I'm wrong, forgive me, folks, but I don't remember them introducing the seductive side of the Mega Rod before this this issue. And I found it really an interesting uh, attribute of the weapon. And you're right; it's a huge testament to Barta that she's able to resist this all the time. Because I mean, what ends up happening? I mean, the the, the body horror, the seduction. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like the you know the dark side of the Sith and all that from Star Wars. Um, right. His descent into madness. It's all pretty terrifying and also very convincing the way it happens. Yeah, so, that is huge, huge credit to Barda for being able to resist that. Yes, absolutely. And you, you talked about her power and stuff like that. One of the things that bothers me is that she is not officially on the team. Right. Um, and this really sticks in my craw, big time, because she's around all the time and right. she's one of the most powerful members. She's helping them train. She's doing, you know, all kinds of stuff. And yet she's not part of the team. She's, according to who's who, she's not on the team as well. And, and they even talk in this very issue about being shorthanded in members. Absolutely. And so they go recruit Huntress instead, right. who's got a crossbow. Right. So it really bothers me because, I mean, as you watch her, she could easily have become like the field combat leader in, in, on the team. Yeah, she absolutely could have. And that's been something that kind of bugs me about this as well, is that, as you said, she absolutely really should be on the team. It makes all the sense in the world. But there's been sort of this tension all the way along about how she said that Mr. Miracle talked to Oberon and decided to join the team and really didn't consult with her. But now she's become sort of like this auxiliary member that just doesn't get recognized. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's a problem, particularly. Particularly, again, if we're going to look at this from the perspective of how we're treating the female characters. You know, and Huntress is very important. As we look at the end of the issue, the way that she's recruited is problematic, clearly. <sighs> but Huntress has not exactly been part of this for very much or very long. I mean, there's, you know, when she uh, saved Max a few issues ago. But it seemed a bizarre left turn for me in some ways that they did not include Barda in ways that it would have just made total sense. Yeah, agreed. Now, the Huntress stuff, I think I know where that's coming from. Uh, Andy Helfer edits this book. He was also editing the brand new Huntress book that was on the shelves. Mm -hmm. And they were really trying to push Huntress as uh, a major player in the DC universe. So Mm -hmm. they had her a couple issues ago. They have her here. I imagine that's sort of his influence because even though she joins the team, she doesn't do much uh, going forward. So she ends up fading away. Now, you talked about Barta and not having the agency she needed and sort of not winning the day here. One of the hallmarks of this series is that the heroes often fail. We talked about that. Or they don't win the day. And when they do have victories, they're quite often Pyrrhic or someone else is the one who has to save them, or it's just Absolutely. dumb luck. So I don't think Barta actually is getting singled out here. And I actually did a little research because I was sitting here scratching my head going, you know, is it is it unfair that Barta doesn't save the day here? Did it take away her agency? And then I started looking at it, and I've got a couple examples here, of times in recent history where the JLI, all of all the members fail. 
fail, you know, with the, with the vampire a few issues ago. Oh, yeah. Booster and Beetle, so they didn't succeed. The vampire actually committed suicide. Then right. with Beetle's brainwashing, both Beetle and himself and Amanda Waller completely failed. Ken Nelson had to be brought in to save the day there. Date night, yes, Guy Gardner did beat the Black Hand. However, <laughs> it was designed to show us how horrible that was, and we felt bad for the Black Hand. So that wasn't really a victory. Number 26, so going back further, Huntress and Batman did manage to take out Blue Beetle. However, that's one of their own teammates. So it, there's a, in, a, a final one I want to mention with issue 24, which is where um, there are all the heroes are in the embassy, both Justice League Europe as it was getting formed in America, and the Cahoons show up in the embassy. And they defeat the Cahoons, but they end up destroying the embassy while they do it. So I don't know that Barta's agency was taken here. I think everyone's agency gets taken in this series, actually. Uh, yeah, and that's true. And I agree with absolutely all you said. The reason for me that it seems to me is that her agency is at least limited, mm-hmm. right, is she just is unconscious, right? I mean, okay. she's she's fighting with a teenage biker. You know, it's the, you know, the bit about, you know, give me back that rod. She's she's making a grab for it. And then just out of nowhere, she face plants. And there's this funny panel where, I mean, the only thing in it that says thud, right? Mm-hmm. She just face plants. And from that point on, she's pretty much unconscious, right? True. And so for me, because she's not conscious, there's limited ability for her to affect anything else that's happening throughout the rest of the issue. So even if she was still awake and conscious enough to possibly screw stuff up, right? But, you know, she's just she's just completely out of it. And so we have to wait for the others to save the day. But you're absolutely right. In a lot of these issues, there's lots of screw-ups everywhere, and they kind of, in some ways, fumble their way to success. <laughs> but, you know, but poor Barda can't because, I mean, she just face planted. So. That's fair. So that maybe this is another road to hell sort of situation with her agency yeah. in that the way I read that page is completely different until you pointed it out to me. Because she, before she face plans, she takes two full blasts to the face. Yes. Uh, and no one else does. Even even Mr. Miracle, when he gets hit, it's sort of a side blast. Right. She's the only character to take two straight on giant blasts from this wand, which obviously has taken a lot of energy because when the guy first shoots her, he looks pretty much okay. And then right. when by the time he's done shooting her, he's like almost a husk already. So Absolutely. It just, I read yeah. that as going, wow, if this thing's powerful enough to take out a Wonder Woman level character, then it's got to be super duper powerful. And then yeah. the people who win are actually, even though Mr. Miracle's sort of involved, it's really Fire and Huntress who are the oh, ones really that is. succeed because yeah. they, put, they yes. put together a plan, they execute the plan, and they're successful. Yes. I don't know. I guess I read it differently, but I, I see your point. Yeah. It, this could be Barta's story. You're right because it's the Mega Rod and she's not there right. at the end. Right. Exactly. Like I said earlier, I mean, you know, you sort of see, and I mean, for all other characters, both the male and the female characters, you see sort of agency waxing and waning and shifting and this is just a moment where Bart is out of it and it requires Mr. Miracle's there as she said but it requires her other female teammates even though she's not on the team <laughs> to really kind of come in and save the day so I guess yay girl power by the time everything's said and done and we can't go any further without mentioning uh, since we're talking about the teenage biker the, the slash grinders was the name of the I gang. love that oh, the glory <laughs> of 1980 street toughs oh, know, my right? they, they just don't get any better than that exactly and <laughs> The upside down cross earring that he had—that's a lot of fun too. Oh, I didn't even so, notice that. Oh, yes. that's the best. <laughs> yes, so nose ring and a little extra jewelry as well. So, like you said, gotta love the uh, street gangs of the late '80s. So. <laughs> 
got some other stuff to talk about too, but I want to talk about the art for a second here. So there's no indication, as in previous issues, Giffen always did the layouts for McGuire or Templeton or whatever. There's no indication of that here. Though they do play around with the nine-panel grid format a little bit, and there are lots and lots of butt shots, which is a Keith Giffen hallmark. So I'm I'm getting to a question here where Bill Willingham is known for drawing very sexy men and women. Mm -hmm. Uh, He drew Justice League International Annual number one and two, uh, and given that Fire, Barta, and Huntress are all in this issue, I was kind of thinking maybe that might be why he's tapped for this one. And Mm -hmm. the women do look very sexy in this issue. Huntress especially is showcased. And my question mm-hmm. for you is, now without holding the costumes against Willingham, because he didn't design them, uh, right. were the female characters drawn too sexy or provocative in this issue? I didn't think so. I mean, again, there's the, the costumes are what they are. But, you know, I mean, I think that whenever you're having conversations about the way that characters are being drawn, again, whether they're male or female, I mean, it's it's to me, it's sort of the whole package is to not just the visual depictions of them, but sort of how they're being treated in the story and that they're not just sex objects because of the outfits, right? Okay. You know, so to me, it's always about sort of, we're back to agency again, what kind of agency they have and sort of how they're empowered in a lot of ways. And while you're right, I mean, it's, some of the costumes are pretty high cut. I mean, the Huntress's costume is... Basically lingerie. It really is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and hey, and fire, I mean, you know, at a certain point is, you know, completely incorporeal here. Yeah. But but it's modest because, I mean, you know, she has no body, but she's encased in green flame. So, you know, so to me, I didn't think it was overly much. Okay. The, the only thing that jumped out at me, which made me even wonder this question, was uh, I mentioned again, Willingham's known for drawing hot men and women. And right. we don't really get any beefcake in this one. Uh, Mr. Miracle is not drawn especially hot and sexy. So that's sort of what made it jump out at me that made me wonder. I'm glad I asked the question. Yeah, no, I'm glad you are too. You know, I mean, honestly, Mr. Miracle's costume is such that I, I don't know it could ever really be hot and sexy, no matter who's drawing it. Do not so. scot free on sexy. I, I think he's terribly <laughs> hot. So. Well, I'm not saying he's not, but perhaps the costume is... <laughs> You don't go for the red and the yellow and the the green, yeah, huh? And the mouth yeah, weird mouthpiece yeah. and eye stuff. Yeah, okay. it's it's the mask that kind of you know does me in there, I guess. So. It's a little creepy. I mean, if it, in real life that thing would look super creepy, I think. I know, right? <laughs> See, so a couple other things you mentioned: fire not having a corporeal body. That's a big deal. That comes up a lot yes. down the line. So this is the yes. first time they reference this. That's pretty cool. That's a little different than yeah. Human Torch. Absolutely, yeah. And I I kind of love the way that fire's like storyline is playing out here, you know, and how all of this is about she's learning to use those new powers and sort of the oh surprise you know I mean that bit when the teenage punk says to her there's no one under this flames and she says well what do you know there ain't another development to look into later (laughs) (laughs) and and they play up with that a lot down the line I I remember there's a lot of jokes where she's teasing the male members of the team basically saying when she transforms into fire she's naked right and they're all like what what you know with their tongues hanging out and everything Uh, right exactly which which kind of plays to sort of the way that she's portrayed herself in some ways all the way through the series, you know, that she's sort of that sexy Latina character, and you know, it, it kind of, I think, is sort of a nice through line from sort of the early days of the series with her. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And also this this costume she's wearing this issue, which I'm not the world's biggest fan of, this is the end, folks. Uh, next issue, she gets the famous JLI costume that she's most associated with. Yes. That's something to look forward to there. Yes, absolutely. A few other just uh, rapid-fire things. There's there's a joke, in, well, I, think, I assume it's a joke. There's a police detective in here named Detective McGuire. Yes. Uh, it's got to be a nod to Kevin, even though it doesn't really look like Kevin, because Kevin had hair in the 80s. Uh, <laughs> now he's bald, but back then he had hair. So let, let's talk about Huntress for just a second here. So first of all, when, when the punk dies right. and, and Mr. Miracle is really upset, she gives the camera the most sly smile. Yes, I love Ooh. that. 
man, yes. she is a dangerous lady to know. Yes, absolutely. That was, I thought, a lot of fun and was sort of a, a, a fun little twist on everything because, I mean, poor Mr. Miracle is is mourning what has happened here. And she's like, yeah, poor thing. I mm-hmm. love that part. So. Yeah. And there's a lot of interesting discussions to be had about Huntress's, you know, good or bad side. In fact, over on the uh, Batgirl to Oracle podcast recently, my friend Stella mm-hmm. and her group had a discussion about Huntress and this evil sort of side or not evil I shouldn't say that but the more I'm not going to kill you but I don't have to save you sort of philosophy interesting Uh, interesting to see it here playing out then the ending here where Mm -hmm. Max mentally pushes Huntress into joining the team yeah that is and even back then I mean this isn't like a 1980s haha it's okay I mean even back then we were supposed to feel really uncomfortable about this this is way out of line right it absolutely is I mean boundary violations of the utmost and uh, it's super creepy just really super creepy and sadly as much as I like to pretend Infinite Crisis didn't happen I know right uh, the seeds of that version of Maxwell Lord and and what he did to Blue Beetle and controlling everyone it's right here it's right here that's exactly it and uh, part of the thing I mean not only is the thing itself super creepy what he does but but the thing that for me on that last page it kind of sells it is when you get sort of that close up of her face and the joy and the excitement of joining the team yeah and she says I'll be there and you know what I can hardly wait I mean she is so dazzled by the opportunity that she's been given here to join the team and then he leaves and she's like wait what did I just do but to me the thing that just really creeps the whole thing out is that panel with that face yeah he's not just convincing her to join the team he's mentally making her right. excited absolutely. for it absolutely in the minute he's out of range she's she's regretting it i mean it's oh, yes. it's a date ra- well it, i mean no, i'm, no, I'm, I'm really not in a lot of ways i mean obviously she hasn't been physically violated but this well, is mentally, mentally violated absolutely yeah. it's really it's 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 rapey i mean there's really yeah. no other way to think about it so i'm i'm, I'm gonna be watching closely as we go forward whether we because i can't remember because folks i'm not reading head right whether we see a remorseful max for doing this uh, i want to say there's some repercussions on the line but i'm not sure so i don't know we'll we'll find out one way or another but i do want to mention one quick art shout out on page 11 there's this great shot of barda as she's punching the punk because it's they've been building up to this point showing how powerful the punk is and then just showing barda clock him it's it's one panel it works much better digitally if you if you read these things in like panel by panel view because you get this full page of just like boom uh, but this can which is great i just i love seeing barda in action i like seeing her kick all the ass which is great yes yes that's one of my favorite things about barda <laughs> yes. <laughs> so there's two more art comments, and then then I'm done here. Which is there's some nice panel design throughout. It's not anything like revolutionary, but it's nice. The story flows well, and I like the way he sort of teases the nine panel grid, which Giffen is famous for right. at this point. But then he disrupts it by like, turning the bottom row completely different. There's a good yes. example of this early on. I think on page uh, two actually, where you start off in a nine panel grid, but he completely changes the bottom section of that, which yes. just looks really nice. Yes. Yeah. And I actually like the next page where you get sort of what I mean. It's not really a splash page because mm. you've got that you know I mean I love how he's playing with proportions and the way that things are laid out on the page yeah that, yeah that, that boom really tube cool. is just yes. really and the, and the sound effect for boom is just yes. enormous it's enormous <laughs> and it's just gorgeous so really good stuff and the last art comment is about next issue next issue is the beginning of the Adam Hughes run on the Justice League and the cheesecake and beefcake will never be the same <laughs> after this folks <laughs> all in all you know it's funny and this happens a lot when I read these things I see an issue on the horizon I'm like, yeah, I don't really remember a lot 
on about that issue. I feel like there wasn't a lot that happened, and I was thinking that about this issue. I was thinking, eh, it's just kind of a fight with a punk, no big deal. But when you dig into it, there's a lot of really interesting stuff here, especially the seduction of the Mega Rod. Yes. Uh, I really enjoyed this issue. Do you feel like it was a good one? Do you feel like it was a, a good representation of, of the enjoyment of the league? I, you know, I do. Like I said at the beginning, this wasn't the most overtly funny one. So, I mean, Very you know, true. we didn't have a ton of wahahas, but I really thought that this was a great depiction of the way that they always come together. They're always faced with what seems like an insurmountable problem, and they always find very interesting, creative ways to work together and solve it. And we've seen that again in this particular issue. Yeah, and, and they actually fought a bad guy for once. Uh, that doesn't yes, happen, absolutely. Doesn't happen very often, even if it no, was, it really doesn't. Even if it was their own fault that the bad guy had the power. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, since you mentioned the humor, let's get to that, folks. It is time for us to nominate the Wahaha Award. This is where we are going to nominate the funniest moment of the issue. Both myself and Jenny will pick a moment, and only one will be awarded the coveted Bwahaha Award. Now, Jenny, you are the guest. What All is right. your selection for this issue? Okay. All right. Well, I had several contenders, but the one that I settled on is when Barta and Mr. Miracle are fighting the teenage biker, and Mr. Miracle has said to her, Barta, be careful. He's not responsible. And she says, sure, hon. I'll be gentle as a kitten. And then she says, give me my damn mega rod, twerp. And that made me laugh out loud. There are a few times in the history of this podcast where the guest and the host pick the exact same moments for the Bwahaha Award, and this is one of them. Outstanding. Part of it, besides the fact that it's really funny, uh, is, as you said, there's not much humor in here. I only had one backup. Normally, I've got like five or six backups. Yes. I only had one backup, which was where Barda says, with dark side, there is no bright side. Yes. And and the joke only works if you actually say it out loud, because reading it on paper, it doesn't work. And they even hung a lantern on it to tell you it's a joke. Right, exactly. But that was, I mean, there, there was stuff with Oberon and stuff like, and, and Mayor Koch and all that. So, but yeah, I, right, I right. definitely agree. That was the funniest moment of the book. That made me laugh out loud. And, and you know, Bob LePan, the letterer, did a great job with the, yes. give me my damn Mega Rod dwarf. Yes, making absolutely. It really, aggressive. it really sold it with the lettering. Yep. And you know what, Barta, it, it's about her Mega Rod. So she deserves to win the award. So congratulations, absolutely. Barta. You have won the coveted Bwahaha Award. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. Wear it with pride. Outstanding. Uh, Jenny, by the way, this is this is a little embarrassing for me. I accidentally, <laughs> we'll put that in quotes, left my some of my <laughs> podcast recording equipment, essentially my weapons, in the trunk mm. of my car. Would you mind going and getting those out of my car before they fall into the wrong hands? Well, Shag, I'll go take a look, and you know, you really should have secured your podcasting equipment. <laughs> I really hope there's no teenage biker megadeath folks out there anywhere. I know, I know. Don't worry, Jenny, we will bring you back at the end of the show. After this podcast promo break, I'm going to head over to the Paris Embassy in France for the sixth issue of Justice League Europe. To confront the ultimate killers, I must construct the ultimate alias. Hey, who is that lady? I think she could fly. To combat the murderers who destroy my family, crush my own life on their way to consuming everything, I must become a greater, more fearsome destroyer. Hey, man, somebody killed this lady. To track down the animals who prey on the innocent, I must stalk them first. I am no longer their quarry. I am the Huntress. New Huntress Podcast, coming to you in 2019. Visit the 89blogspotcom for new episodes. Go to the Facebook page at Huntress Podcast. Go to Twitter. The Huntress Podcast. 
And you can always find episodes of The Huntress Podcast at rightonnetwork.com and go to Apple iTunes, where this podcast is a joint venture with the Helena Bertinelli Podcast and the Cassandra Kane Batgirl Podcast. So go to Apple Podcasts, the Batgirl slash Huntress Podcast. Batman Nightcast, a thrilling new podcast from the Fire and Water Podcast Network, hosted by Ryan Daly and Chris Franklin. Nightcast chronicles the Cape Crusaders' adventures in Batman and Detective Comics after Crisis on Infinite Earths. Highlights from this legendary era include Batman number 400, Legends, Mike Barr and Alan Davis, Batman Year One, Batman Year Two, Max Allen Collins, Ugh. Um, the new Jason Todd, Ugh. Millennium. You're not doing this right. Let me take over. Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle. Alan Grant from Jurassic Park? Did you hear me say Norm freaking Brayfogle? Oh, yeah. Son of the Demon. The Killing Joke. A Death in the Family. Batman Year 3. A Lonely Place of Dying. Alan Grant, Alan Davis, Max Allen Collins. Why are there so many people named Alan from this era of Batman? The Rise of Tim Drake. Legends of the Dark Knight. And that's just up until 1989. Did anything exciting happen with Batman after that? You'll have to tune in to find out. Batman Nightcast, part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Find it on iTunes and at fireandwaterpodcast.com. Oh, we forgot to mention your favorite issue, when Batman fires Dick Grayson. You want to find another co-host? And now, our coverage of Justice League Europe, number six. from break and I'm here with our second co-host for this episode. This gentleman and I use that term very loosely. Uh, he is a freelance interviewer for Emmys.com He's a self-proclaimed member of the Fire and Water Podcast Five Timers Club. He's the executive producer of the Pod Dylan Podcast. He served in a professional capacity on various TV shows, including King of the Hill and Liberty Kids, one of my children's favorites, by the way. And uh, longtime Fire and Water listeners will know him as the owner and operator of the Katana Banana and for his infamous Playgirl spread. Now, personally, I have been fortunate enough to call this man my good friend for nearly seven years now. Oh. And and if I'm Skipper, then he's my little buddy Gilligan. Folks, please help me welcome to the show Mr. David Ace Gutierrez. Welcome to the Paris Embassy, David. Thanks for being here. How are you doing, man? Ooh la la, Shag. How are you? Doing fine. <laughs> you going to do the can-can or whatever it is? Well, I know. Let's see. Allons-y. There right? we go. Bonsoir. Merci beaucoup. You know, we have a lot of French listeners that listen to the show. They're probably horribly offended right now. Well, that's fine. Wait, you have two. You have Cisco. Oh, he's not French. We have the entire French-Canadian right. quadrant who listens to the show, and they're just 
going to be outraged right now. That's okay. I'm outraged at them most of the time for for uh, for, for their opinions on Thanagarians and on Kyle Rayner. So that yeah, tit for tat. All right, fair enough. Tit for tat, as they might say. I don't know. Oh my gosh. So folks, David yep. and I have a very long history together. We've been friends, as I said. For I, when I added up, I was shocked at how long it's been. I have received many many late night or early morning texts full of profanity directed at me. <laughs> that is not a lie. And uh, well, we, in fact, at one point we were podcast partners. We started we a network dedicated to the Ultraverse. Right. We're covering Ultra Four Six. That's exactly what we're doing. Ultra Four Six, drawn by George. Perez. Picks died. Yep. And <laughs> they just left Atlantis. Uh, Ghoul is back. No one has any idea what you're talking about. <laughs> and we're looking at Prime, but he's in his uh, badass Prime look with the uh, so anyway, with the blue. The, uh, yeah. Ultraverse Network shined <laughs> very, very bright for about six months. And like the Ultraverse itself, it burned out very, very sadly. So most of it had to do with contract negotiations between David and I. And it took this long to, to work that out to get us back together. We're on brand. So question for you, sir, that I ask everyone yeah. uh, before you take us further off the rails here. What is yeah. your personal origin story with the JLI? How did you find the books? And uh, what made you fall in love with them? Well, I remember my first issue was issue six when it was just Justice League and it was the Gray Man issue. Mm-hmm. I remember seeing some of the Detroit issues on the stands and not being interested at all because nobody looked familiar to me. And even though I'd had Who's Who, that wasn't really a team that I felt like I could invest in. Mm. Make me sad. And I had no idea there was a relaunch or anything until one day I'm in a Walden Books in San Antonio and I see it's a great cover because it's it's Captain Marvel. I guess, well, Shazam now, right? Holding a, a rock is going to smash Martian Manhunter. Yeah, I just, I fell in love with the art. The team, I remember kind of thinking like the team was sort of familiar to me. A lot of the members were kind of familiar, but not not in that incarnation, or at least certainly not in that combination. And then I just picked it up and then really just fell in love with it. I think I hit it at just the right time because they were just about to go international. Yep. So they were definitely building up to something. But, you know, they had some subplots introduced as they were going to go, as with Maxwell Lord. They were really starting to explore his uh, origin at that point. Mm-hmm. And then it went international. And then one of my favorite comics of all time came out after that, which was Moving Day. <laughs> And yeah, and I was hooked for a long time. And then I, you know, it all kind of petered out around breakdowns before breakdowns for me. I just didn't have the money to keep collecting. Yeah, I was in. And I was really into Justice League Europe because I felt like I can get in on the ground floor on this one. Sure. You know, I really liked Invasion and I liked seeing how the League had been involved in it. What was interesting is they weren't even like really the front and center Mm -hmm. of it. And you would think the Justice League would be. But no, it was Captain Adam. And then he was going to lead this team. And and, um, I've always been a fan of Wonder Woman's. And she was supposed to be on this team. Yes, she was. And, um, and, you know, it had my favorite character of all time, The Flash. Oh, right. So I was in like Flynn. I felt the same way as far as getting on the ground floor because I, I wasn't buying Justice League America, but I was buying Justice League Europe. I got in for the same reason. I felt like I could, you know, this was the, my end point and it was supposed to be the more action-oriented book. I was never sure what the line was supposed to be between the tone, if each book was supposed to have its own distinct tone or not. Because I, I remember reading that, I think, in comic scene or something, that it was supposed to be more action-oriented. Correct. Prior to launch, that was the plan. But it never really seemed that way to me. I mean, it, it had more Explodo probably than JLA, but it never felt that more actiony, if that makes sense. I felt that way too for a long time, but now in my reread, I would say definitely the first four issues, the Bialya stuff, had a lot more super heroic action and battles against bad guys. Then you get into, yeah. we got a couple of issues in between here. Like this one is very jokey. That's unusual. But then you get into the Teasdale Imperative. Later on, you get into the Extremists. So I do think that. This book does have a more superhero focus, but mm-hmm. certainly there's got a whole lot of jokes in here, too. More than I think we all expected based on the early promotional stuff. I think maybe the pacing of the other book is better than this. When the 
dialogue matches the art a little better. Because hmm. we could talk about, there's a panel specifically, it just doesn't work because of the way the comics medium is set up. Every panel is just a moment in time. All the reading that you're doing within that panel means all this stuff is happening simultaneously, kind of, right? Right. And you're just looking at a single moment. But there's too much happening word-wise to make sense visually. I found like that sort of thing happened a lot in JLE. Hmm. And Interesting. Yeah, that was that. just that's just my take. There's definitely a panel like that, which I noted as well. Uh, I don't know if you're peeking at my notes or not, but uh, there's definitely one panel I would agree with on that. So we'll find out when we get there. You made notes? Well, yeah. Did you even read the comic? Really? I thought we were going to do that as we went along. So let's... <laughs> this, is, this is a live reading. It's exactly what it is. All right. So, folks, <laughs> this is going to be Justice League Europe number six by DC Comics. Cover date is September 1989. On the shelves, August 1st, 1989. And the cover price was a dollar. Four shiny quarters. It was a dollar? It was a dollar. It was a dollar. It wow. It's 75 cents for a long time, but a month or two before this. Basically, when the Batman movie came out, all the prices went up to a dollar. <laughs> cover is uh, this one here is by Bart Sears and Art Nichols. Now, why don't you describe the cover for the folks at home? Well, are you familiar with the James Bond movie for your eyes only? I am. It's the first James Bond movie I ever saw and the first James okay. Bond comic book I ever owned. So you remember how coming down from the from the top of the poster where it was, it was a woman wearing actually backwards underwear. Did you know that? <laughs> So it could cover more. That's why she was wearing backwards underwear. So anyway, the, James Bond is framed in between her legs, essentially. Yes. There's nothing subtle there. There's nothing to read into. <laughs> this is similar. There is a woman wearing zipatone stockings, I guess mid-heeled shoes. It's in a classroom setting. And between her legs, you can see, and the only time you'll see people in costume, yep. I think, in this entire comic, forward to back, Flash, Metamorpho, Animal Man, at a chalkboard writing, I will not talk in class, Captain Adam, Major Disaster, Big Clue Master, and then just to the left of, of the Flash is Power Girl, and just to the right of Major Disaster is a little bit of the clocking and a little bit of Multi Man. And so they are in rapt attention of the teacher, uh, each of them with different facial expressions as the Justice League is Europe is going back to school. I love that the back to school is written like on a chalkboard. That's that's cute. Right. And then of course Captain Adam doing all that. And Flash is like based on the pucker in his mouth, I think he's whistling like uh yeah. hot stuff at the teacher. Yep. Right. And he's got an apple on the desk, of course, uh, to be the teacher's right. pet. They're all sitting so rapidly like attention, like little kids, which is hilarious. And did you notice how much bigger they are than their desks? That's true. Their knees they are do, coming out. They do look ill-fitting there, don't they? <laughs> yeah. We're going to talk about this more when we get in the issue. But why go for the sexy? Why go for the sexy teacher legs? I don't really get that. Well, the teacher, as we will see later, she is a looker, according to Wally. According to Bart Sears. <laughs> we, should, we should save that part of the discussion, I guess. But oh, that's true, too. Yeah, we, we should okay. save that for the discussion. But it really is a sex sells kind of cover, and yet it's not a sex sells kind of issue, so it's a little right. offsetting. So anyway, why don't we get into this? So Here we plot go. and potentially breakdowns, we'll talk about that, by Keith Geffen. Script by J.M.D. Mateus, penciler Bart Sears, inker Pablo Marcos, letter Bob LaPan, colorist Gene D'Angelo, assistant editor Kevin Dooley, and editor Andy Helfer. You want to give us the recap for this issue, sir? So this issue is called No More Teachers, Dirty Looks, which is, of course, based on, on the old rhyme. We open up with Ralph Dibney, the elongated man, and Sue Colbert, who runs the French embassy at the French Embassy, and they're discussing the fact that the remainder of the JLE team is going to be taking French lessons. Meanwhile, as it turns out, after their release in Justice League International 23, the Injustice Gang, which is composed of Multi-Man, the Mighty Bruce, who looks like a young Shag, I'm thinking, <sighs> Claw King, Big Sir, who looks like Shag today, oh my Major gosh. Disaster, and Clue Master 
have moved to France, believing that because there are fewer heroes in France, that they will stand a better chance of being able to commit crimes and get away with them. And because of this, Major Disaster thinks that it's going to be a good idea that they also take French lessons. But what I wonder, Shag, is do they not read the papers? Was it not big news that the <laughs> Justice League was opening up a European embassy and several embassies, specifically locating into to France? It does seem that the Injustice League might notice the Justice League in Paris, but whatever. Okay. And this is also begins the, the running gag of multi-man uh, wishing that he was in London. So, the JLA team, composed of The Flash, Power Girl, Captain Adam Metamorpho, you gonna sing it? Animal Man! And Animal Man are in, are in their night school French class, led by Miss Kessler. And she's a very no-nonsense, kind of hot-for-teacher, Van Halen teacher. <laughs> as noted by Wally. So, as we've always set up, Wally's kind of a jerk, he's kind of a sexist jerk, and he makes that clear. And Captain Adam tells him that he's acting like a child, and as always happens, Power Girl threatens to beat Wally up for insinuating that Miss Kessler has a nice attitude. Also present, and I don't know if you picked up on this the first time you read it, Shag, but there are three students who are going to become more important later, but they get receive no dialogue within the entire classroom setting. Well, the old lady talks to somebody a little bit. Right. But yeah, the they're, three. they're there yeah. in the background. They're very easy to forget about. Yeah. And it was cl- very cleverly set up. The Injustice League then shows up late. And then this is how we're shown how by the book Miss Kessler can be because she lectures them on the importance of being on time. Back at the headquarters, we learn that Ralph's middle name is Randolph. Did you know that? I did not know that. And his wife, Sue Dibney, suggests, oh, rest in peace, Sue, suggests to Catherine and Ralph that they maybe recruit this new heroine that they've been following on the news, the Red Fox. I'm not going to try to pronounce it in French, but it's something like Le Renard Rouge. And right? yet you did try. Okay. <laughs> uh, back in the classroom, we are learning, and we find out that Power Girl can't read French. She doesn't know that the, v, that the Z is silent. I don't know what kind of language Atlantean originally was, if it was a romantic language or anything. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> She's Kryptonian, darn it. <laughs> but this is where both members of the team start to notice there's something hinky about the other guys in the room. Specifically, the Justice League guys notice a few things about the nondescript people. And a couple of them notice that there's something going on with the Injustice League members. And the Injustice League members immediately cop onto the fact that something is hinky with the Justice League guys. Specifically, Metamorpho, who is dressed like the thing in, from the Fantastic Four comics when he tried to disguise himself. <laughs> a big fedora and a, and a trench coat. Very true. But Major Disaster Master finally notices, he sees the back of, of Metamorpho's neck, quickly figures out that Metamorpho is in disguise, and he pieces it together. Then we get another inference of Multiman wishing that he was in London, and we learn what happens when you chew gum in Miss Kessler's class. Has <laughs> this ever happened to you, where you have to put the gum that you were chewing on your nose for all to see? I had to put it in my hair, which is why I lost all my hair, actually. Is that what happened? Yeah, I figured I'd set it up. I know how much you would love that. They just cut it, and they said, don't stop. Yep. <laughs> uh, back at the Frisian headquarters, we are introduced to our chain-smoking 90s cool Inspector Camus, where he learns that the Justice League and the Injustice League are indeed taking the same French class together. Then, uh, back in the classroom, Major Disaster wants to pass a note to the Mighty Bruce, but he has to pass it through Animal Man, who, oddly enough, doesn't even want to read it or anything like that. <laughs> Big Sir gives himself up when he's being reprimanded by Miss Kessler and refers to himself as a third person in Big Sir. And that's when Wally immediately puts it together, because Big Sir is one of the original Flashes villains and power girl also puts it together miss kessler intercepts the note and is threatening to share it with the whole class all right miss kessler reads the note aloud which says quote haul our butts out of here fast we're in class with the jle we then get a hilarious series of 12 vertical panels of reaction shots to the reading of the note 
Immediately, all members of the Injustice League raise their hands and ask if they can go to the bathroom. But before they can go anywhere, the sound of police sirens from outside fills the room. Major Disaster announces his identity and that of the Injustice League. Then everything goes bonkers as a huge brawl ensues in the classroom and the surrounding hallways. The brawl eventually ends when Miss Kessler, actually it's Ms. Kessler, impressively shouts for them to stop immediately! Everyone stops in their tracks. Just then, Inspector Camus and the police burst in with guns drawn, which gets them in trouble with Ms. Kessler for being so rude as to point. Later that night, back at the embassy, Ralph, Sue, and Catherine learn that the entire team were arrested. We also find out the Injustice League were eventually deported, and the other classroom participants are revealed to all be spies from foreign governments assessing the potential threat of the Justice League Europe. And the perceived threat level is not much. The Justice League Europe spends several hours behind bars until Catherine Colbert arrives to pick them up. Catherine explains that Captain Adam could have invoked the team's diplomatic immunity at any time to get them out of jail. A very embarrassed Captain Adam says he wasn't aware of that option, and the team is furious with him. Then at the end of the issue, we get a box that says, don't be here next issue. That's right, don't be here next issue unless you've read Justice League America number 31 first, because that's where our first four-part JLA slash JLE crossover begins. If you love action, passion, drama, and lots of bad jokes, you won't want to miss the startling saga we call the first JLA slash JLE crossover. Witty, ain't we? Oof, that's a mouthful right there. All right, buddy, so what did you think of this issue? I liked it as an issue in and of itself, Mm -hmm. but I looked at it in the terms of the run, and it feels a little odd coming right after the Stag, Sapphire, and Metamorpho issue. Okay. Because it just felt like another kind of a breather issue. Because as you'd said earlier, we'd really kind of just started from the the jump, as they say, with the the Nazis attacking the, the Parisian embassy, and then the Global Guardians get involved, and then we go to Bialya, and then we have Kind of like, you know how the X-Men always had that issue where they were playing baseball or something sure. after they fight the Shi'ar for the 80th time? <laughs> then, there's, then there's the dip and somebody dies or is going to leave and somebody focuses their totality or something. And then we ramp back up, right? I love this issue because it's self-contained and I think they were trying to do their own version of Moving Day. It absolutely is the Just League Europe's version of Moving Day. Absolutely is. But it doesn't hit me the way Moving Day did. That's because you're dead inside, sir. I think Moving Day just had a better sense of its characters. Let me ask you this. I'm going to throw a question back on you, Shag. Now that you're reading these books side by side and comparing them, do you Mm -hmm. feel like JLA had a better handle of its characters than JLE? Yeah, You know, it's an interesting question because I was thinking about this issue. There is some level of sameness in the characters right now in Justice League Europe. Like, uh, Captain Adam, you know, he's got a few personality quirks. Metamorpho's got a few personality quirks. Uh, Elongated Man and Animal Man. Although, really, the four of those characters, in a lot of ways, are interchangeable. You could kind of use them in, in any different capacity and mix them and match them in a mission and it really wouldn't change the flavor of the book at this point. They really haven't distinguished them enough. Uh, I mean, they certainly have their traits. I mean, you know, Animal Man's married and so is uh, Ralph. But I mean, but personality-wise, they're really not that different. Now, Flash and Power Girl and Dimitri are. I feel like they are sort of developed enough. But yeah, the, right. the characters are a little same-ish. So I won't say you're wrong there. But I, I don't know. I'd have to go back and reread Moving Day. I don't know that the characters... Besides Beetle and Booster, were really that developed at that point yet either. In fact, I remember Captain Adam during Moving Day being nothing like any version of Captain Adam we've ever seen. Right. I wasn't that familiar with the Carrie Bates series. That version of Captain Adam was the only one I really knew for a long time. Gotcha. Okay. The Justice League version, who was kind of meek and shy. 
guy and didn't say much. And I and I never knew if that was because Giffen and Dimitrius didn't really have a handle on him either. Well, he was also a dirty, rotten spy. Right, right, right. Well, he was, but you can attribute that to that's the persona that he's putting across because he's a spy, or they really weren't sure how to use him. Yeah. But they, but they wanted to use him. You know, like with Captain Marvel, I felt like they were just getting him when they wrote him out of the book. They weren't really given a choice on that one. No, I know. And, you know, Wonder Woman, I would say she really didn't have much of a personality in this book either for the five panels she was I think in. She was, I think it was four panels, but yeah. <laughs> <Fair enough. laughs> I don't know. This Wally is very different. Not very different, but such an extreme version of the Wally who was in his own book, right? Yeah, the skeeviness here is off the charts. Right. He's almost caricature of himself. And the Power Girl really wasn't having much going on, so they could do a lot with her. And she was very much a caricature, too. Right? She was a character of an angry person, yeah. Right. Now, I will say that as far as the equivalencies to Moving Day, I mean, both Moving Day and this issue were early in the runs. Both of them were the, really the first time we saw the team in really outrageous, hilarious slapstick sort of level hijinks. And both of them were done by like their most renowned creative teams. And they're both genuinely funny stories. I mean, I was telling my daughter before we started recording tonight, I told her the plot of this issue. And she thought it was hilarious. She's like, are you serious? That happened? I'm like, yeah. And so even the plot alone from like a sitcom perspective works. It's it's funny business. So I, I think this, is, right. uh, this issue is a success. You know what I think it was about Moving Day? Is Moving Day is all internal. It's all about the league members themselves, right? Yeah. And they were all reacting to some external stuff like checking for bugs, all the embassies, Booster and, and Guy hitting on who would we then learn as Catherine Colbert. That'd be Booster and Beetle, thank you very much. Sorry, who did I say? You said Booster and Guy, but you know, whatever. Oh, Booster and Beatles. And you called Catherine Colbert Sue earlier, but I mean, I'm just, it's fine if you want to show yourself to be that oh, boy. stupid. But. Oh, boy. Okay. <laughs> Captain Adam versus the security system. Yes. You know, it, it, it was all just the characters. And I think because they introduced the Injustice Gang into this, they had to devote story time to them as well as the leaguers. So the leaguers kind of got the short trip if we're going to compare it to Moving Day. See, I love the aspect that they introduced the Injustice League because we get to see, I mean, they really only get one or two pages, but you get to see that they are just as dysfunctional as the League. And I love that because the League kind of is shown to be buffoons quite often. And you, and you read those stories, you're kind of like, how could these guys be heroes? But then you right. see the villains are just as stupid and have just as many of their own, you know, self-destructive qualities. And I love that about it. Right. At the same token, I can see why this book was such a turnoff to, I guess, the traditional League fan. Oh, Sure. Right. Yeah, the, the whole international era, there's a lot of people out there still who have a, have a hard time. Yeah. Since you're an old grump, what did you like about this issue? I always enjoy when heroes and villains face off in civilian clothes, <laughs> as they did here. <laughs> it's not ridiculous to me, but it's so ill-fitting to see them running around. Like, you know, Power Girl's just in a red button shirt, you know what I mean? <laughs> Wally's in an ugly sweater. Around. Yeah, a Cosby sweater. Right. And Captain Adam can't even really be – he can't add him up, you know what I mean? He has yeah. to stay with, with his mullet and everything. It, it works comedically because it's goofy that they have to to be themselves, but they're not themselves, because you would argue that they're more themselves in costume than out. Yeah, no, that's fair. Well, I think it's also the setting, the the whole idea of being stuck in a classroom that everyone can relate to, right? with an overbearing teacher who, you know, you can't talk in class, can't pass notes, can't chew gum, all these things that are so stereotypical school, and to see these grown adults that were used to, you know, saving the world are trapped in this ridiculous setting, which, you know, when we we were probably in school when this came out, you know, it's it's rather funny. I was. It's a great setting. Well, I also like the fact that everyone, including the police, yielded to Miss Kessler. Right! They all respected her authority in the classroom, even though you can make the argument that the police probably 
probably had, had a greater authority than she did. I don't know how the law in Paris works. You probably do because you, <laughs> you you have to constantly flee the country. Right. No, I, I liked how that – the guy who punched the hell out of the Flash was afraid of this French lady. Actually, she's an American. She says she comes from the States. I'm sorry. Of this teacher in France because she's a teacher. Yep. A guy who can create natural disasters is afraid to pass a note in class. <laughs> That's why I love it. You you can put this comic in, I think, anybody's hands, whether they know the characters or not, and they would genuinely laugh and have a good time with it. It's a great one and done. You, you talked about the, the breathing issues or whatever. Yeah. Admittedly, it, we did get two in a row, you know, with, with Rex as well. But if you think from a trade paperback perspective, you get four issues of Bialya and then two issues of Breather, which makes a great six-issue run. And then you get right into Teasdale. So I think that sort of works from that perspective, whether they were running for the trade or not at the time. I think that sort of works. Ugh, so much to talk about. Now, I did see one comment about this whole French idea. One person online that said that Metamorpho should not have even been in the French class because being a, a world-traveling, you know, globe-trotting sort of man of adventure, he should already know French, which is a bit of a fair point, I guess. But it, 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 Is it, though? Well, I don't know. It's quite possible. Rex Mason was quite the world adventurer, but, you know, it's, it's still, it's funny to have him there. I love his interactions with Cluemaster, where basically everyone else is fighting, and he just says, Cluemaster, you move, I'll kill you. And so right. that's it. They just sit there and talk the whole time through the whole fight, which is a very typical JLI kind of thing to do. Plus, he's, you know, he was depressed about his family. He's, he's working through some stuff. Your clue master? From the last issue. No, um... Oh, bro, oh okay, gotcha. Metamorpho. Yeah, metamorpho. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't think we even know about Spoiler yet. <laughs> oh, that's right. Would she even be alive at this Yeah, because she was alive, coming around, I don't right? think she had been yeah. created by Chuck Dixon yet, yeah. Right. I like how Bart Sears inserted the spies... Oh, they were hilarious! ...into this. But, I mean, visually, he sets them up so they're always in the classroom, but they never call attention to themselves, really. And it makes you reread it. I remember the first time I was reading, like, who are these four people oh, wait, you know, and then I had to go back and just follow through the issue and see, okay, so that's where that woman first appeared. That's where that guy first appeared. That's where this other guy first appeared. So I think, well, I, I don't know if it was Sears or Giffen, right? Yeah. But uh, wh- whoever set that up visually, I think did a great job. I love the gags at the end when they're all reporting to their supervisors. You get the Soviet spy, you get the Israeli spy, you have the Indian spy, and you have the U.S. spy. <laughs> and the, the U.S. spy is reporting, right? The potential for trouble and the extreme embarrassment of the United States remains. And the guy says, did you at least learn the language while you're there? And she says, I'm an American, sir. I don't need to know French, which was just so perfect for the time and for the, the attitude Americans have towards French, which is awful. Uh, I find it was a very funny delivered line. And also, you know, most of the team thought it was a bad idea, you know, or they didn't want to be there. Well, they were very clear about not wanting to be there. True. So you said there's a panel that doesn't work from timing. What, what, what's that about? It is Power Girl is chasing after. OK, we, we got the same one. OK, go ahead. <laughs> it's, it's multi-man and. I guess that's Clocking, right? Yes, because no, he's talking um, about time. Right. It's Clocking, and they're intercepted by Inspector Kemu, and he tells him to stop. And in one panel, you have all this going. So Power Girl is flying toward Clocking and Multiman. Power Girl says, Did he just say don't move? Clocking says, Yup. Then Power Girl says, Meaning he expects me to stop. Multiman says, Uh huh. Power Girl says, But I can't stop. And then Multiman and Clocking at, at the same time say, Right. <laughs> so there's a lot happening in like a second. Or less than a you know second. Yeah, I mean? She's basically flying yeah. down a hallway at super speed. So yeah, it all happened that fast. So yes, I, I have the same note that there's no way that dialogue could have happened. However, I did find it a funny bit and I found it even funnier that we didn't actually see her because you know she just crashes into the cops full bore and couldn't stop. Right. And, and I think it's funnier 
that we don't actually see the crash. Right. We don't even actually see them apprehended because Camus runs into the classroom shortly thereafter, which is in tatters because of the fight between the leagues. Yep. And that's when Miss Kessler tells tells them to stop and, and Inspector Camus stops. So, yeah, ideally, everyone would be peeling themselves off of the bloody mess that they would be when Power <laughs> Girl would sl- slam into them. But Absolutely true. This is the same thing people say about Superman 1, right? When he's flying up to catch Lois and she would have been pulverized as she's plummeting down, reaching terminal velocity, and he's flying up. Very true. Neither here nor there. Do you like Inspector Camus? I think he makes a good foil. Justice League Europe was always on the back foot. They were always in trouble with the locals, which, you know, it it makes a fun reoccurring gag, which also drives them to this issue. I mean, the whole reason they go to French classes is to try and get in better graces with the French people. So having Inspector Camus sort of hate them because they're always causing problems, I think that's a good working gag. I think it's funny. And yes, he looks very 90s. He's got disheveled. Has he got a ponytail? He probably does. He seems like... Yes, he does. He's got long hair, long, greasy hair. Smoking, trench coat, ponytail. Yeah, it just seems like the the, the perfect late 80s, early 90s kind of guy. Yeah, so uh, it works. So Ryan Daly circa 1995. Or even me circa 1988. Unfortunately, not the smoking part, but yeah, yeah. Were you like that? I had the long hair. I didn't run around with a gun, but yeah, so. (laughs) He reminded me of like every French detective I've seen in, in, what's his name? Inspector Clouseau? No, 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 no. The guy who directed The Professional. I can't believe I'm forgetting his name. Oh, okay. Yeah, or or like in Frantic. Did you ever see Frantic? No. Okay. Subway with Christophe Lambert. Oh, goodness. Of course it's a Christopher Lambert movie you're going to (laughs) mention. Right, yeah. So, yeah, the French police there. It seems like almost a a cliche at this point. Well, maybe that's what he's basing it on. No, sure. I like the art. I've always been a Bart Sears fan. I like that he's not afraid to show facial expressions. Mm -hmm. I know people have called it like, like uglying up the characters, which is fine because you get to see some real emotion. Yeah. And you get to see lines and creases. I just remember in art school, in, in our classes, people say every line you add to a woman's face, that's 10 years. And that would be that's wow. stupid. Well, yeah, it's, well, one, sexist, and two, prevents you from really showing any expression. Mm-hmm. But he's not afraid to do that. Everyone, like, wrinkled as hell, like California <laughs> raisins sometimes. <laughs> not quite to the point Keith Giffen will do it. Oh, my God. But Keith Giffen yeah. stopped drawing faces, right? Everything's in black, that's true. Blacking them out around this period. Now, I, I want to talk about Giffen, because when he would write these comic plots, he would draw little breakdowns or little mini comics to, to lay yeah. out the plot. And Guire and all those guys followed those. And Bart Sears, according to some interviews we've read, did sometimes follow those breakdowns and sometimes he didn't. And I really feel like this issue, even though there's a whole lot of butt shots, because Giffen loves his butt shots, even though there's a whole bunch of butt shots, I don't think Giffen did this one. I really get the sense that Sears did this because the, the panel layout just feels very, very different than the previous JLI issues. It's nice. It's, it's almost refreshing. It's kind of different. So I get the sense that maybe this is more Sears than, than we've had in previous issues. Maybe, but they'll have those big multi-panel grids. But you don't have a nine-panel grid. I didn't see one in here. There's I a do. lot of sixes. There's one with a 12 vertical. There's a seven. There's a nine. Where's a nine? There's Give a lot of nines number. and sixes. Oh, there is a nine panel. Oh, gosh. You may be onto something there. Huh. All right. Well. And then the close-ups of the expressions when the Hall Our Butts page. Yeah, but that's 12. That's, that's completely different. But I'm saying that's all Giffen. That's an example of a different sort of thing that I was thinking was was an indicator that it wasn't Giffen, actually, because that one's so different. Interesting. But all right. Interesting. So there, there's something else about the art we have to talk about. So here's the deal, guys. And this is a tough one. There are some comments in Wally West's dialogue in the script where Wally's pretty skeevy, talking about how hot the, the teacher is. I think he has one, maybe two comments about that. So she has a nice attitude. Yeah, and and it's a big butt shot, so clearly he's talking about that. So anyway, and as far as any other sexist things, I mean, the school teacher is a female authoritarian uh, school teacher, which is, you know, kind of typical. However, they're really going for the classic classroom setting, and so having her be like a a school marm or something or whatever sort of makes sense. But when you get into Bart Sears' artwork, he takes average everyday clothes and scenarios and really sexes them up. I mean, the way those clothes fit, both Catherine Colbert and the school teacher are very, very
very provocative. He did not do the same to Power Girl and Sue, which was interesting. But the teacher and Catherine are very, very provocative clothing. And a lot of the panels are definitely designed with the male gaze, as it's called nowadays. I will tell you, I mean, it's sexy as hell to look at. I'm not going to lie, especially if you're looking in panel by panel view. But through a 2020 lens, it doesn't really feel appropriate. Uh, Would you agree with that? I would agree. And I I would say that it it looks a little cold in France. (laughs) That is a nice way to say one thing. Yes. I don't know. Maybe maybe that's a very well air conditioned room and embassy. Um, As I said, the the, the clothes fit very... um, Provocatively, let's just put it that way. Yeah. So, in by the way, I, I mentioned panel by panel view. I got to tell you, folks, I know I preach on digital comics, but guys, if you don't own, especially these Just League Europe's digitally, treat yourself. Comicsology is running sales all the time. I mean, there's probably one going on right now, I bet, uh, where you can get all the Just League International trades for just five bucks, and you can do it and panel by panel view. This particular issue is featured in JLI Volume Five, or if you have the DC Universe subscription, you can read it there. It's so gorgeous, digitally remastered with the colors. Looking panel by panel is stunning, you, especially with Bart Sears' level of detail. It really, really is amazing. I, I can't say enough nice things about it. I have to agree. You hear that? David agree with me. That's a red-letter moment in the history right there. Can you edit that out? <laughs> Not going to happen. Now, personally, you know, I, I, it sounds like you may feel the same way. I love seeing Bart Sears draw these characters. and perhaps it's, perhaps it's because I was reading the series when it came out, and maybe I'm just sort of brainwashed for it. I don't know. But it just feels right. Exact, regardless of all the exaggerated bits, I, I love it. I just absolutely love it. And unlike the Mothership, I guess, title. Just like America? Like, they never had a bad penciler. You know what I mean? Like, they had Mike McCone, you had Adam Hughes, you had McGuire, of course, who launched it, you had Ty Templeton. When Sears leaves the book, I think it, it leaves a huge hole in it. It never quite recovered for me. Sears is a very hard penciler to follow up, yeah. There, there's going to be some issues that aren't as great as others, but they find their way. They do. And we'll, it'll take us a while, probably, to get there, but we'll see it. Okay, well, that's my two cents. Fair enough. And the writing, always strong, always strong. As, as, as we talked about a little earlier, it's a little goofier, I think, than JLA. There's straight man. Is Captain Adam is a little more bumbly than Martian Manhunter straight man and Batman? Yes, I would agree with that. So I think that's how it kind of tracks a little more into, I don't want to say slapstick, but it does swim a little bit more in the, I guess, humorous waters, if you will. This issue definitely, I mean, you can almost hear Benny Hill playing in the background here on this one. <laughs> um, but, Yaggedy sack. Right. But but other issues where the more action-oriented ones, they, they don't feel quite that like that. I, I did sure. want to mention another quick art thing that's really nice. On the very first page, the very first panel is an establishing shot of the JLE Embassy in the dark. And as you go to the second page, it's another top left-hand corner establishing shot, but this time of the Injustice League's apartment. Another establishing shot with the building in shadows. And it's just, it's very, um, it it makes a nice symmetry because you have a page of the the hero base, you got a page of the villain base. It's just a really nice, and if you don't, if you're not paying attention, you miss it. So it's another nice touch that I think Sears put in. Have you been reading Watchmen again? Is that how you got Oh my gosh. So you're reading the digital one. So you uh, you see the the last panel after the story ends. We get this great shot. I mean, you know, I read out that huge block of text about next issue, but they fill the space. They did this great little shot of all the heads of like Justice League Europe across the top. You get Elongated Man and Rocket Red and Animal Man and Captain Adam and Power Girl and Metamorpho and Flash. And then it says the first JLA JLE crossover. And beneath that, you have all the, all the Justice League America heads. And I, I'm assumingly drawn by Bart Sears, and they look great. You see Fire and Booster and Beetle, and they're even holding up a card. This is blue and gold. Martian Manhunter, Batman, uh, Mr. Miracle, Ice, and Guy Gardner. And Elongated Man is stretching his head from the top, where the JLE people are, down to having his head sort of like touching his head to fire, like in a sweet sort of way. I just think that looks great. That little image looks fantastic. It is great. Oh, and I do love that there's still one more stab about how, from Big Sur, that he liked the previous Flash more than the current one. (laughs) 
<laughs> which is a running gag, no pun intended, uh, for Wally West that everybody prefers Barry, which yes. is which is ridiculous because Barry is the was the most boring version of the Flash at that point. You are not wrong. You are not wrong at all. Uh, I've got a few more notes to make very fairly quickly. Like when they're all in jail, I like the fact that you know they've already been identified as Justice League. They could break out at any point. The only thing that's keeping there is their respect for the law, which I thought that was a nice touch that they stayed. And they didn't, they didn't call it out, but the fact that they stayed there, you know, they're trying to abide by the law, which was nice. This issue is ch- should learn from that. that <laughs> this issue is chock a block with jokes. I mean, almost every single panel has jokes in it. It is hilarious. Uh, I, I, I captured a couple here, not necessarily the best ones, but just ones I thought that were kind of neat. Like when they're looking at, and we'll talk about Crimson Fox in a second. And Catherine says, "That's the spirit," and uh, Long Getting Man's like, "No, that's the Red Fox," and goes on to say that it's not a joke if he has to explain it, which is clever. I just, you know, nice nod of the yeah. spirit, classic character. Clock King and Multi Man refer to each other as Bing and Bob, and then they say the right. road to London's looking pretty good. And if you don't know your history there, that is a reference to Bing Crosby and Bob Hope in their series of Road to movies. So that's what that was kind of a hint of. And I kind of wondered if the outfit that Clock King's wearing, because he's wearing a very uh, gaudy sweater. I didn't know if that was a Bing Crosby and Bob Hope sort of sweater. I wasn't quite sure. But yeah, yeah. I don't know where Bart's here shops. <laughs> There's a great line in here uh, about when Major Disaster loses his cool and he's threatening to fire everybody. And he's decided he wants to go work with the Joker and Penguin and stuff like that. And Mighty Bruce, which that's a whole other thing, Mighty Bruce. Uh, Mighty Bruce says that uh, all they want to do is kill Batman. And he says, killing Batman is a lucrative market these days, which is, of course, a nod to the Batman movie at this point, which is hysterically funny. And Inspector Camus reading a file marked Kevin Dooley. Don't know if you noticed that, buddy. I did. My old my old workmate. That's right. So you worked with Kevin Dooley? I did. We were at eToys together, eToys.com. That's crazy. What a small world. It really was. I remember I had a drawing that I did in my cube, mm-hmm. and I was on the phone, and he's looking at it, and I'm not friendly, so I look it up. You could have just ended that sentence right there, but anyway. Right. You know, back then, you had no idea what people look like, right? Who sure. worked in the comics field or whatever. So I'm like, why does this guy keep looking? And he, and he looks at me and says, I miss seeing all that stuff. I used to see that stuff around my office all the time. And I hang up and I said, okay. And then he hands me his old business card and it says Kevin Dooley. And I let out the biggest Homer Simpson. Oh, you're that guy. And he says, yeah, I'm Kevin Dooley. And then from that moment on, every day was, say, I had a question about the Joe Potato entry from Who's Who. Or, and I don't know if anyone ever noticed this, but the best Dooley story I ever heard from him was he had just gotten his promotion as the Green Lantern editor, mm-hmm. but he was being put in, in charge of of putting out the Emerald Dawn trade. So he says, okay, I'm going to put it together. I'm going to get a great artist for this. And he gets, I think it's Dennis Cowan to do the cover. It goes to print. It goes great. Then somebody points out to him that on the cover, Green Lantern is not even wearing his ring. Oh, no! Like the central thing about that character. <laughs> I don't know if their artist missed that entirely. The editor missed that entirely. Everybody missed it. The colorist missed it. Everybody missed the fact that Green Lantern was missing his ring. Ouch. Oh, yep. Dooley. I used to ask him all sorts of questions. Oh, I bet and, you uh, pester the heck out of him. You pester the heck out of me and I'm nobody. So I can't imagine somebody, that's true. somebody would get bothered. Oh, my gosh. He's the one who told me how to pronounce Nort and Jean Jones. I think it's how you're supposed to say it. Or Jean Jean. Jean Jones. Yeah. And then Nort by pulling your nose as you say good Nort. That's fantastic. Oh, my gosh. Six degrees of David. Right. 
I got one more thing, and then we need to get moving on this here. So uh, this is the very first appearance of the Crimson Fox in this issue, who goes on, obviously, to become a member of the Justice League Europe. Uh, we've talked about her quite a bit on the recent Who's Who episode, actually. But here's the deal. So in this issue, Crimson Fox is referred to as, and we're going to butcher this, but yes, uh, David butchered it first. So Le Renard Rouge, and then also called the Red Fox. Well, you notice they called her the Red Fox, not the Crimson Fox. So what ends Oh, up, they did, didn't they? Yeah, they call her the Red Fox throughout the issue. So here's what happens. I read about this on a CBR, and it supposedly corroborated this story. But anyway, it got changed to Crimson Fox because there was a British black-and-white independent comic around this time called The Red Fox. And the guys who were doing Red Fox were concerned about copyright issues. And so they got a friend of theirs to go to DC and talk to them about the name. Well, it's independent black-and-white comic. This is just like, who cares, right? Well, their friend who came to them and talked to the editors at Justice League just happened to be somebody by the name of Neil Gaiman. So he had a little bit of a pull. In fact, Neil Gaiman apparently wrote the introduction for the first Red Fox collection, as well as a four-page story in one of the issues. So he was pretty connected on that. So therefore, Le Renard Rouge was changed to uh, Le Renard Rouge. I'm probably still saying it wrong, which translates as to red hair or ginger, which, by the way, still Red Fox. The ginger fox. But they translated it by accident, I guess, as crimson fox. A foxy ginger, like. like uh... <laughs> for that very reason. So there you go. So first appearance crimson fox. Uh, the world famous television star Crimson Fox was she a twin in that on that TV show I, also? I, I didn't I, I tried to watch Powerless I couldn't do it uh, she's it was viewerless. What? Uh, Up top. All right. Well, all in all, I think this issue was a huge success. Uh, you, you sound like you're on the fence. Do you love this thing or not? I did when I read it back in the day, and I and I still really like it. Okay. But, you know, my sense of humor has changed since I, <laughs> since I was, like, a, what, 12 or something? Your sense of humor is broken. <laughs> but, no, I, I do like it a lot, and it reminded me why I loved the JLE so much as a, as a kid. You'd be hard-pressed to find a book that launched and kind of kept that great momentum going for – up until I would say Power Girl lost her powers, I think is when I'm not saying it got bad, but it did. I think it peaked right around that time, and then it it, it kind of it ebbed and flowed at after that. All right, well we'll find because that's not too far away, so we'll find out. Yeah. Well, all right, folks, we should close out this issue and get into our next segment, something I like to call character spotlight. This is where the guest is going to be asked to share some thoughts on one of the characters in the issue, not really an origin recap too much, but more about where these characters were in the DC Universe just before the JLI got interacted with their life, and how the JLI, uh, or the Justice League in general, impacted them. Why don't you tell us a little bit about Major Disaster? Well, I can tell you that his name is Paul Booker, and he was originally a Green Lantern villain. He found a casebook belonging to Thomas Kalmalku. Do you remember him from the New Guardians? I, I remember him from places other than the New Guardians, but yes, I am aware. That's how I remember him, from the New Guardians. Guardians. They, they so fought sorry. guys like uh, Snowblind or something who got super powerful off cocaine. Can we talk about Major Disaster? <laughs> yes. I'd rather talk about New Guardians. But uh, <laughs> but anyway, he was like your typical science villain. He had some, some gadgetry that could, that could initiate major disasters, major natural <laughs> disasters. And eventually the, the use of that, of, of all that technology and his gear found its way into a system and he could then produce it naturally. So if you want to look at where he was right before this, it was around the time the invasion that uh, major disaster met that guy, the mighty Bruce, who was like just his powers are just he's just a computer with 
is, right? He's really not. Yeah, he's just Bruce. Mighty. He's Bruce. He's not mighty issue, at all, right? I, this issue, I think he declared himself mighty Bruce. Actually, is what happened. Right. There's there's not much <laughs> there's not much in the way of powers for that guy. Anyway, they meet in prison, like most of your your friendships have where we uh, formed. Right? Yeah, yeah. Top bunk, bottom bunk. They met in prison and they formed the Injustice League. Then we had the big invasion where the Injustice League ran afoul of Guy Gardner. And I would I might add that this marked the trifecta of Green Lanterns that Major Disaster fought and was defeated by, where he was imprisoned again. Then they got out, and then we're in this issue where they meet the Justice League Europe. And then in the next encounter of JLA, which I believe it's the Kui 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 up issues, where we we start to see a change of heart from from uh, Major Disaster, where he he's aided by the JLA and Aquaman. He then eventually gets assigned to Justice League Antarctica Gosh. with the rest of the Injustice League, the Scarlet Skier and Gnort in a special comic. And what and you you do know why this is the greatest comic ever to hit the stands, right? I don't know about greatest, but I know why it's important. Yes, because my brother Robert Giuseppe Kelly inked a panel or a page in that comic while he was at. I don't know if he's told you this. He's very humble about this. Yes. So I don't even. You might want to cut this part out. But he went to the to the Joe Kubert School, and one of his instructors needed assistance on the inks for this book, and he said, "I need my top guy," and he chose Rob. That is and a so Rob's of work. story. Yes. <laughs> What do you mean? No, that just you know how humble this major he is. disaster sex is taking like an hour. Okay, fine, 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 fine. So then, I promise you, we will talk about it when we get to the Justice League Antarctica issue. If that makes you feel better. Okay, thank you. Do you remember this thing called Underworld Unleashed? Absolutely. Do. In fact, my in stock trades promotion was about the issue from Aquaman. You're about to talk about the major disaster from Underworld Unleashed. Okay, so uh, major disaster takes up the offer of Neron, who's I guess a Lord of Hell or something, to um, in exchange for major disasters soul his powers will be amped up considerably after that he joins that's very similar to the very similar to the deal you made to get on this episode yeah but that was yeah we'll talk about that later uh (laughs) he joined the suicide squad for a few missions and then i guess remembering his heroism batman recruited major disaster to join the league of substitute leaguers when earth's mightiest heroes the justice league are transported back in time into something called the Obsidian Age. I dug that, man. That was a great team. It had Firestorm and Green Arrow and Major Disaster. It was good, good, and good stuff. Great characters like Faith. That came Joe later. Kelly, Joe Kelly really liked Major Disaster because then he used that character for his Justice League Elite run mm-hmm. where we learned that he's an alcoholic and he gets careless with his powers and that results in an in, in injury to Hot Girl. He walks off the team. Then he has the, the good fortune of being killed by Superboy Prime, not one but twice Ugh. first are you spitting you mentioned Superboy Prime so ugh. oh you hocked a loogie yeah once during Infinite Crisis and then when Major Disaster is raised from the dead again in Blackest Night he's killed again by Superboy Prime so twice times Jeff Johns has it in for this guy I guess <laughs> That's that's major disaster. He was always an interesting guy. He stopped using the hooded outfit around the time of the yeah. Joe Kelly era, but his outfit is kind of goofy. You can see it on the cover of this issue. Yeah. So I, thank you for that recap. I I dug the major disaster in the JLI issues, and I dug him quite a bit in the Joe Kelly run of Justice League. I thought it was a good chance at a redemptive arc. I didn't know a lot about his history other than JLI, so I don't know if he has a history that's so bad he really shouldn't be redeemed. I don't really know, but the the redemptive story they were trying to tell there, I thought was pretty good. Yeah, he was their rogue slash Wolverine character, right? The guy who 
He's damaged and tortured, but yeah, with the well, right team, might find some purity. He also appeared in, as, as the Frank Lindsay will point out one day, probably, an episode of Justice League Unlimited and uh, was in a Batman Brave and the Bold episode as well. Awesome. I wonder if he's got action figures out there. He should. Maybe. That'd be a major find. I would love to put a uh, Injustice League action figure collection together. That'd be a hoot. So, all right. Well, thank you for that recap. Very educational. I know the folks at home sincerely appreciated that, David, and you reading that Wikipedia entry back out to him. Thank you very much. I did not read that. Like, <laughs> this isn't my words. <laughs> All right, folks, on that note, I think it's time for us to do the Quahaha Award. This is where we're going to nominate the funniest moment in the issue. Both myself and David will pick a moment, and only one okay. will be awarded the coveted Wahaha Award. David, you are the guest, unfortunately, so you get to go first. What is your nomination for the Wahaha Award? Well, it is the panel that I pointed out as being the most problematic <laughs> of, really? the, uh, of the issue. Yeah, because I love the idea that Power Girl is not going to be able to stop, and I know it's weirdly paced, but I just like the idea of her sort of pratfall tackle uh, of multi-man and the clocking, and probably not out some Parisian officers, but being knocked out by Kara, probably not the worst thing to happen. <laughs> Other than she's, you know, made of bulletproof skin, so therefore she hits like a brick wall. So yeah, that's fair. All right. My pick is different. She's lovely. Uh, my pick is page 12, the entire page 12, where Miss... All the reactions. Yeah. Miss Kessler reads out the note about, haul our butts out of here fast. We're in a class with the JLE. She's like, what is this all about? And then you get 12 brilliant shots of all the reactions. You get major disasters, just like, oh, God, why did she read my note? Captain Adam's like, huh, wait a minute. Big Sir's just being stupid. Animal Man's like, what? Multi-Man is just cringing. He's so mad. Power Girl, you see her angry eye. Wally's like, oh, it's going to get good in here. And then Mighty Bruce, of course, is just looking nervous. Clue Master looks nervous. Clock King is looking at his watch and is shocked. Metamorpho's so shocked, his hat is flying off. And then, of course, the teacher is like, I'm waiting for an explanation. I just find that whole page hilarious. And it's, it's it's even better when you do it in panel by panel mode because it's just panel after panel after panel after panel after panel. Oh, it's so good. This one just cracks me up. So now we have to decide which is the winner, the Power Girl moment or this moment. You want to make a case for yours, you know, for your piddly little joke of a panel that doesn't work versus my linchpin of the entire issue leading to that moment. You know, which one's more important? I guess probably a page beats a panel. <laughs> <laughs> Even though I can't tell who's who in a couple of those panels, but that's what? cool. Whose eye is that? The giant eye. That's it's Kara's. Okay, then who is in the green? Is that Clock King? No, Which, is that Clue Master? Bottom row, um, third panel. Yeah, that's Clue Master with the flowing hair. I thought that might have been Kara. Okay, that's clearly oh, a the, dude. The shirt. Sometimes Bart Sears draws Kara with a very strong chin, so it's and hard to Adam tell. Oh, that can happen. Okay, you're right. <laughs> okay, you win. There. That's what I wanted to hear. Perfect. Seven years of our friendship has all been leading to this moment. Thank you very much. <laughs> I do just want to let the listeners in on how I ended up with this issue. Because I remember when you called me, what, like eight years ago or something like that, when you were going to do this series, you say, hey, do you want to do this? And I said, oh, yeah. One of my favorite all-time comics is a Justice League comic. Can I get uh, Moving Day? You said, oh, sorry, that's taken. I said, okay. Can I get like the, the first Justice League International issue right before Moving Day where they where, where they go big and, and you get to see the thing from Apocalypse and it, it's a great done-in-one issue. Uh, no, that one's taken. That, that one's taken. I said, okay. Well, I'm a big 
JLE fan, so can I get JLE 1? Taken. Okay. What about the recruitment drive that leads to the JLE? That's also been taken. I was like the fourth person you said you called. Dude. Okay, first of all, I don't remember it this way at all. The way I remember I do. was, I remember you asking for the French lesson because you loved it so much. And I have had... Yes. Okay. I have had so many people ask me since then for this issue. And I'm like, I'm sorry. It's already taken. It was promised within like the first week of the show being announced. That's how popular yeah. this issue is. When you announced this show, you said, hey, are there any issues you want to do? Let me know. And I gave you like five. And you said those were all taken within a matter of, of like minutes. All those other people are more important than you, though. I know. It took eight years for me to do this show. I scheduled you four years ago. <laughs> <laughs> We'd only been friends for three years at that point. I, you might right. have been in jail by then. You all know right, what I mean? Look. Like, you, you really forecasted. This thing's gone on way too long. All right, folks. It anyway, has. congratulations, Miss Kessler, for winning the Bwahaha Award. It is as tangible as the laughter we give you. Now, David, I need to ask a favor. Would you mind hanging around here and teaching some of the League members some French? Uh, I've heard you say often enough, ex- you know, quote, excuse my French, and then you spout off a whole bunch of cool I have said words. that. So uh, I figure you could handle teaching them some French. While you do that, I'm going to tackle some listener feedback. Would that be okay? Yeah, I'm going to go watch some Christophe Lambert movies. <laughs> Brush up. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. All right. Well, don't worry, David. We will bring you back at the end of the show. And while David's taking care of that, folks, I'm going to read your listener feedback in a segment called Justice Log. Alright folks, and before we get to your feedback, just a little bit of news. Over on Amazon, there has been a solicitation for JLI Omnibus Volume 2. That's right folks, the first JLI Omnibus came out a while back and we kind of lost sight of any further trade paperbacks or collections. But this kind of came out of the blue. It supposedly is going to be released in August 2020. You can look it up again over on Amazon, JLI Omnibus Volume 2. Given the size that they're promoting, this could quite possibly complete the Giffen Dimatteis era of the JLI. So it would be a real shocker considering there's been no other collections to come out after the content from uh, Omnibus to Volume 1. So this would be great news. And thanks to Rich Matsumoto for the heads up on that. Other news, coming in March, watch your local comic shops for something called Dollar Comics Justice League Number 1, 1987. Yes, this is a reprint of the classic Giffen DiMatteis Maguire first issue of Justice League. And uh, I don't know exactly why it's called Dollar Comics, because the price they're soliciting is $3.99, but whatever. Anyway, this is being released to coincide with the Justice League of America a Celebration of 60 Years hardcover, so watch your stores for that. Then got some interesting news about the WizKids game Heroclix. Uh, Jeff Polier reached out to us and let us know that there is going to be a winnable Heroclix figure in the relatively near future. May have already happened. I'm not entirely sure. But in this kit, it contains a special Batman and a special Martian Manhunter. And check this out. The Batman Heroclix, if you've ever seen them, it's, it's a fun game. But they have all these special abilities and things like that. Anyway, the Batman special abilities are one punch. We do it my way or no way. If you find my meetings boring, there's the door. Because I said so. Cover your eyes. Yes, you too, Gardner. You'll do as instructed and do it now. Are you threatening a fellow member, Gardner? And the press says we have a sullen, uncommunicative vigilante as leader. Yes, all of those are quotes from Batman from the early issues of JLI, and they have translated those into different abilities that this Heroclix has. It's crazy. So also on that set is going to be a Martian Manhunter who's obsessed with Chacos and apparently a particularly nasty Despero. So thanks to Jeff Poyer for the heads up, and look for those winnable Heroclix, folks. 
Then the Legos. You know, they've been making these little minifigures, and they do these DC Comics uh, blind bags. Well, thanks to Adam Ackerman from our Denmark Embassy, he gave me a heads up on a new set coming out that's got Mr. Miracle, Metamorpho, and Huntress. So some good JLI representation there. Then, and, and this is really technically old news, but I just stumbled across this. There's a company called Cryptozoic, and in 2016, they did a trading card set just entitled Justice League, and they had a lot of different representations of the Justice League over the years. Well, nine of the cards, if you put them in top pocket loaders, form a giant painted image of the Justice League Europe. And it's painted by Zermanico. I probably said that wrong. Anyway, but it's the Justice League Europe. It's this gorgeous painting. It's the classic team we've been discussing today with uh, Crimson Fox in there. Thanks to Trey Chemnitz for the heads up on that. Then, all right, so this is just a random observation. You know, CW just recently did their Crisis on Infinite Earth storyline. I don't know if you watched it, but anyway, they did like a million promo photos uh, releasing in advance of all the different cast members and different poses and all this stuff. Anyway, one of the promo photos from of the cast in costume was done on a set of stairs. Clearly, someone on the set of this photo shoot is a JLI fan because the camera is way up high looking down to the heroes. Everyone's looking up at the camera. Even some of them are positioned similarly to the cover of Justice League number one. For example, Martian Manhunter is off to the right. Ray Palmer, who, if you don't know, in the series is essentially Ted Kord, is off to the left. And Batwoman, who's sort of like Batman, is filling in for Batman in the middle. So it's very cleverly set up. So clearly, someone on the set was a JLI fan. So that's fantastic. Then two more news items. These are more personal related to me. But anyway, over here on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, you may not know, but we have a podcast called the Who's Who Podcast, where we go through the Who's Who comics from over the years. And we've gotten up to the loose leaves. Anyway, the last two episodes of the podcast were kind of fun from a JLI perspective because we had characters such as Guy Gardner, Mr. Miracle, Big Barda, Crimson Fox, General Glory, Dr. Light, Nort, Silver Sorceress, Blue Jay, and Tasmanian Devil. That's a whole lot of JLI characters. So if you want more JLI goodness and you're not listening to the Who's Who podcast, you might want to check out the last two episodes. We had some fun talking about them. And then finally, I happen to be fortunate enough to be part of an awesome superhero role-playing group. These guys that I'm with are absolutely amazing. We do the old Marvel TSR role-playing game, and we play our own characters. But so check this out. One of the members in the group, a gentleman by the name of Nathan Archer, who's an amazingly talented artist, actually drew our characters, which are called the Guardians of Columbia. He drew them in the style of the cover of Justice League number one. So it's fantastic. It's the typical sort of McGuire pose, all of our characters looking up. It's it's awesome. So thank you so much, Nathan, for doing that. It, it's truly a cherished item, and I think everyone in the role-playing group has been having a real blast with it. All right, folks, let's get into your feedback. Get out on the social media. Use our hashtag PoundFWPodcast, tag us at JLI Podcast, or go out to our website, which is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI, and leave your comments on the show post there, which is where most of the conversation is going on. As I said earlier, it's really all about building a community of online JLI fans around this show. And remember, when you're posting your comments and you're outside of the United States, please let me know and we will assign you the proper embassy. Now, folks, this is the part of the show where normally we cover iTunes reviews and we've got a ton of them. However, we don't have any since the last episode. And people, we need to feed my ego. It is like an insatiable monster that won't stop. So please, I'm asking you, if you haven't done an iTunes review, it only takes a few minutes. It really helps raise the profile of the show and it helps more people find the show, which happens every single month. So please, consider going out to iTunes. And if you don't, then Miss Kessler might just be putting you in detention. That's all I'm saying. All right, now we're going to cover your feedback. These are comments from our website, uh, things that came in via email, social media. Going to be pulling just bits and pieces of it because there's so much feedback you guys gave. We'd be here all day. And we're going to be covering our most recent episode, which covered JLA number 29 with my guest host, Boss, and JLE number 5 with my guest host, Bob Fisher. First comment comes from, oh, who's this? Oh, someone named Ty Templeton. 
that's neat. I think you drew some comics. Uh, <laughs> when I was preparing to cover Justice League America number 29, the one that took place in Beatles' mind, I reached out to Ty and asked him about the fact that Ted Cord was wearing Dan Garrett's costume in the Mindscape. And I asked him, was that in the script or was that Ty's decision? Well, Ty got back to me. Ty says, you'll forgive me for not remembering specifically, but my best guess, and I'm almost certain, is that it would have been something Keith would have come up with rather than I. I didn't become a huge Blue Beetle fan until after I'd drawn my run of the JLI. And though I would have been aware of the Golden Age Beetle from Sternenko's History of Comics primarily, I'd yet to have read anything with Dan Garrett's character beyond his flashback appearance in the first DC Blue Beetle issue. Beetle, along with Booster, became one of my favorite characters to draw, aside from Mr. and Mrs. Free and Oberon. Then he says, Kirby forever. Uh, he goes, but Blue Beetle wasn't one of his favorites when he first got the gig. Thanks so much, Ty. We really appreciate you getting back with us. It really means a lot to the JLI fans to hear from you. All right, next comment is from Patrick McMullins. First time we've heard from him. See, folks, I told you we're hearing from new people all the time. Patrick says, I've always think of McGuire, Hughes, and Sears when I think of the JLI, but Ty Templeton was awesome. Totally have a new appreciation for his artwork on the JLI and really loved his Martian Manhunter. Then Patrick goes on to say, I've always loved Justice League Europe, and it's even better than I remembered, especially enjoying Captain Adam in this series. His insecurities as leaders provide some great character moments. Also really liked his compassionate exchange with Metamorpho at the end of issue number five. Yeah, I agree, Patrick. You know, that was a really nice moment, and it kind of showed Captain Adam with a little bit of leadership abilities. Then we heard from my buddy Michael Kramer, and he addresses an issue I have been bringing up for a while now, and I don't seem to stop, which is, it really bothers me that Barta is not officially a member of the JLI. So, uh, Michael chimes in on this, as does many other people. Michael says, I don't think Barta was an official member the way Scott was. She wasn't listed in the roster. However, Barta first got involved because Scott was in trouble, and then because she was such a powerhouse with a drill sergeant personality. She was brought in under the honorary status to assist with things like fires training. Also, Scott and Barta's house got destroyed a lot, so she was living at the embassy during the rebuilding periods. That's a good point. She was around quite a bit, Michael. Then we heard from Captain Entropy. He says, I think of Barta as a member. It may never have been official, either because Max knew she wouldn't follow orders or because she didn't feel like dealing with the administrative hassle, but she clearly participated to whatever degree she felt like participating, and no one had the nerve to stop her. Why would anyone turn down the help anyway? Good point, Captain Entropy. Then we heard from our buddy Chris Franklin, right here from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does shows such as JLU Cast, Batman Nightcast, and many others. Chris had quite a few comments. Just going to pick a few of them here. He says, a few thoughts on JLA number 29. On the cover, I see both Brooke Shields below Ted's right arm and Katie Siegel, then playing Peg Bundy on Married with Children, looking over her shoulder to the left of Ted's head. Great job, Chris. I mean, what an eye. I could never look at a drawing and identify who it was supposed to be in real life, so well done. Chris goes on to say, I never got the reference to Ted wearing Dan Garrett's costume in his mind. I remember thinking, why is Blue Beetle dressed like Aquaman (laughs) inside his own subconscious? Now it makes total sense. As I see, it's Ted feeling like he will never quite measure up to Dan's memory or the career as Blue Beetle. Then Chris says, speaking of which, when Cindy and I covered the... Then Chris addresses the issues about Metamorpho and Simon Stagg and Sapphire. He says, When Cindy and I covered Metamorphosis on JLU cast, we noted the rather icky fatuation Simon Stagg had for his daughter. I don't get that here, but it was there in the original comics and if you read between the panels just a bit. I would imagine old school Simon Stagg wouldn't want anyone marrying his daughter, not even his pet Cro-Magnon Java, because no one's good enough for her, except maybe him. I need a shower. (laughs) Then Chris goes on to say about Metamorpho and the Outsiders hadn't reconnected since he came back to life. He says, you would think Batman would check in on his old teammate. Batman rejoined the Outsiders towards the end of that title's run, and he and Metamorpho did know one another prior to the team, even if you have to discount some of those Bob Zany Haney continuity weirdness and some of those Brave and the Bold team-ups. Good point, Chris. I've been wondering the same myself. Then we heard from our buddy Ward Hill Terry, and Ward Hill Terry disagrees with me, which is no shocker, really, because when he and I met in Boston, we had a great time hanging out, but we disagreed about 
every comic book thing. It was great. It was super fun. So, uh, Warthill Terry says, I disagree with Shag about the cover. Almost all of those ladies have the same nose and lips. The hair is all painstakingly different. Kudos to Kevin for that, but I see a sameness. Of course, Ted might have a type. Then he goes on to say about Ty Templeton, he goes, among the girls drawn by Templeton in Beatles subconscious inside the issue, I spy little Annie Fanny right behind Kent on the scan you included, and Cheetah Torpeda, an obscure Jamie Hernandez character. Wow, you guys are so good at spotting different likenesses. It's amazing. Then Terry goes on to say about Just League Europe, he says, my big takeaway from this is that Giffen and DeMatteis cheated us twice. Two big resolutions happened off panel. This is the weakness of these books when they sacrifice the story for the jokes. In this case, panels of Captain Adam, or Captain Attitude, flying and griping instead of Captain Adam and Max going at it, or even not going at it. Also, the sudden resolution of Rex and Java's fight and then Sapphire's exit. Sure, I can buy the stag manipulated Sapphire and Java into a confrontation with Rex, but the reader is never shown the machinations. It's sort of like driving by a car accident. You see the result, you can guess the circumstances, but you never find out what happened. Well, Terry, I get what you're going for. I think my take on it is, a lot of times, it's more interesting to just skip ahead. Like, if you know there's going to be a fight, or you know there's going to be an argument, and if there's not a lot of interesting things to show in that argument other than two people's side, which you already know going in, why not jump straight ahead to the resolution? Uh, I'm okay with it in these instances. If it's something that we begin to see every single issue, yeah, then maybe it's a problem. But in these two cases, I didn't mind. It moved the story along. So, all right. Thanks a lot, Terry. Then we heard from Liz Ann Oswald, who has her own YouTube channel. Liz says, Blue Beetle is wearing his mentor's outfit. Probably him thinking he doesn't live up to the legacy. Not true, because Ted is awesome, but I'm not sure he ever saw it. It was cool seeing the blue and the gold were an important to the plot of one of these stories. You know, Liz, you make a good point. A lot of the time, Beetle and Booster are just there goofing around and they're funny and they're part of the comic relief, but they're not really critical of the plot. And this time they were. So great observation. All right. They heard from our buddy Martin Gray from the Scottish Embassy. He also has the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. Martin writes, regarding the mental image of Ted wearing Dan Garrett's uniform, maybe he literally has the first Blue Beetle spirit in him. Hmm. And then he uh, gives Naboo's quote, you'll get to the light when your time comes. Now that line of Naboo to Ted was extra interesting in retrospect. As a supernatural walla, did Naboo know how soon his time would be up? Hmm. That is kind of interesting in retrospect. However, I like to pretend Infinite Crisis never happened. Hmm. So, therefore, I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, then Martin goes on to say, Regarding the Justice League Europe issue, I found it a bit boring. As a kid, I quickly grew tired of the Rex, Sapphire, Stag, Java dynamic. It was the same every time out. Having Sapphire, Stag show up here wed to freaking Java made me like her even less than previously. Java's hardly a gnark, is he? <laughs> It's a nice callback to the old Teen Titans there, Martin. Then Martin says, as for Bob's question as to how they'd write Sapphire Stag today, see the recent Legends of Tomorrow comic, she was suddenly a scientist. Oh, Martin, I had completely forgotten that. Yeah, that's a, that's a huge character departure. Then we heard from Damien Whiter from the English Embassy. I had made some comments about the release date of those comics in relation to the Batman movie. And Damien says, you're wrong about the true significance of the release date. It was actually three days before my 15th birthday. Much more important than any film. <laughs> Thank you, Damien. Appreciate that. Then heard from Gus Casals, who says, living and dying for Dolly as Sapphire. Now cannot unsee, cannot unhear. I have decades of Metamorpho, Outsiders, and Justice League Europe comics to go reread. <laughs> Good luck with that, Gus. Then heard from John Schaefer Haynes from the Married with Comics podcast. John says, Barda and the League are a lot like my wife is on Twitter. She jumps into topics and reminds everyone how capable and smart she is. But if I get myself involved in something stupid, she's all, leave me out of 
this. <laughs> John, from what my experience with Maggie, I think that's a pretty good summation. Then we heard from Mike Dynas from our Canadian embassy. Mike says, for the cover, when I picked it up off the stands as a kid, as much as I enjoyed all the beautiful women looking at me, because that never happened to this comic book nerd in the 1980s, uh, he says, I always saw the lady in the checkered dress on the left-hand side as the Queen Bee, and I was confused. Why is the Queen Bee part of Blue Beetle's mind and dreams? She looks like she's plotting something. Is that why Blue Beetle is screaming? I had so many questions as a kid. <laughs> you may have been onto something, Mike. Then we heard from my buddy Tim Price. Now, if you remember, Tim Price is a longtime friend of the show. He and I have this relationship where he writes these really, really long dissertations for comments, and I use them as literature to read to my daughter to help her sleep at night. Let me tell you, after just a couple of sentences, she is out like a light. So, as always, thanks for that, Tim. So, Tim really came through this time. So, I'm just going to read a few of his things. He says, regarding Justice League America number 29, he says, I caught on that Ted was wearing the original Blue Beetle costume on my first read when it came out. Yeah, I'm old! Uh, he goes, but I hadn't thought about why much before now. If Ted had wanted to be Dan's successor, why'd he wear his own original costume? So, I don't think that's why the old costume was in his mind. Rather, Ted is near death, practically given up on returning to the world of illusion. And I think his mind is preparing for joining Dan in the afterlife. So, close Ted as somebody he admires that has already passed on. Or similarly, Dan died wearing that costume, so Ted is dressed in the same remembering how Dan died. This was reinforced when Dan died again in issue number 18 of Ted's comic just two years ago. Hmm, could very well beat him. Then about Justice League Europe, he says, Captain Attitude. Hilarious! I had taken the time to read Captain Adam's series this year, thank you, DCU app, and stopped to keep pace with this podcast. But yeah, whiny Captain Adam does not match his characterization in his own comic. Hmm. And then he says, maybe I'm the only one who cares, but at the end of their series from Millennium, there wasn't an Outsiders anymore. Metamorpho was dead, Looker was powerless, Katana was nursing over a comatose halo, Geoforce returned to Markovia, Black Lightning was taking a break. We haven't seen any of them since that series. Pretty sure no None were in an invasion crowd scenes either, except for Batman. And for that part, wait for Justice League Europe number nine. Ah, okay. Thank you, Tim, very much. So we will get to see something about the Outsiders and Metamorpho having some sort of discussion. So looking forward to that. Then heard from David Capuna. He says, This was the first issue of JLI I ever read. I got it when I was eight years old in a random box from an uncle, which was meant to keep me quiet on a drive before we went on a long weekend camping trip up to a nearby lake, where I promptly did nothing but read comics and swim. <laughs> That's awesome. I love memories like that. Thanks for sharing that, David. He goes on to say, Shame, I have no idea where those all have gone off to since I started seriously collecting. I had the first four trades, however, and I'm certainly enjoying the show. Oh, well, thank you, David. I appreciate that. Then I heard from our buddy Bradley Null. He goes, For no good reason, other than in the art style, in my head, the events of JLA number 29 are connected to Sandman issues number 4 and 5. So not remembered as lighthearted despite the humorous I'm old stuff. Very interesting, Bradley. We may come back to some of that in the near future. Then we heard from our buddy Jimmy McGlinchey from the Irish Embassy. Now remember, Jimmy always plays along with my ridiculous gags. So Jimmy says, Irish Embassy calling, and I'm just back from a meeting with Maxwell Lord after I destroyed the Irish Embassy's monitor board in the comments on the previous issue. I didn't prepare for the meeting because I spoke to Captain Adam, and he said that Max would just offer me a promotion like he did the captain. Big mistake trusting the captain. Max was about to fire me. Luckily, I persuaded him that Naboo had taken over my body and that he should blame him for the damages. I think I got away with that one. <laughs> Thank you, Jimmy. I always appreciate your gags. All right, so Jimmy goes on to say, The JLA issue was a good wrap-up to the Beatles' storyline, and the use of Naboo was a clever one. When I had first read this initially, I was not reading the Dr. Fate storyline, so the use of Naboo, or Kent, threw me on initial reading. Rereading this issue after having subsequently reading the Fate series, it was a very good use of the character and probably helped to bring Dr. Fate back in again in subsequent issues. Very fair statement. I think you might be right. 
Then Jimmy says, the Justice League Europe issue was quite good. Was Captain Adam a bit whiny in the issue? Yes, but maybe he did have a reason to. Oberon was being very snarky and rude to Adam in the initial part of the interview, and maybe that got Adam riled up more than he should have. Hmm, that's fair. Uh, Oberon was being pretty nasty, but then again, Oberon's always nasty, so I don't know. It's a tough call. Uh, I'd say Captain Adam was pretty far out of line, but yeah, Oberon did set the tone. Food for thought. Then we heard from Joshua Romano. He sent me a message. It says, I'm in the hardware store waiting for my paint to be mixed. And the theme to the JLI podcast just came on the overhead music. <laughs> yes, Joshua. Um, for those of you who hadn't figured it out, the theme to the JLI podcast is, in fact, a Christmas song. I heard it myself in December on the radio. It's kind of crazy. Uh, then we heard from James Young. Uh, he let me know that he picked up a complete set of the JLI postcards. Awesome. So cool, James. Those are awesome. Then just want to give a quick shout out to some other folks that sent some nice messages. Uh, JT the Exterminator. Gore Tolton from our Canadian Embassy and Luke Dobb. Thanks so much, guys. Now, this is the part of the show where I thank everyone who shared the JLI podcast on their social media timeline, on Facebook and Twitter. And folks, I know it's a long list of names. I get it. However, these folks show their support and help promote the show. Remember, we are trying to reach more people every single month, and it's working. And to do so, I need your help. So all it takes is a second to go out there and hit retweet or share on Facebook, and your name will be read next time. This time out, we're looking at nearly 70 names of people who helped promote the last episode. So, our thanks to Aaron Headmoss, Adam Ackerman, Boss, Between the Pages, Bob Fisher, Brad Dade, Brad Glenn, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Chris Lydon, Coffee and Comics, Comics in the Golden Age, David at Retro Cabal, David Ace Gutierrez, oh, that guy, David Capuna, Dr. Ange, Dr. Pop Culture of the Bowling Green State University, Dr. Jennifer Swartz-Levine, hey, I know her, Jack Rocha, Jared Albrecht, the yard sale artist, Jeff Poyer, John Mark Hughes, Con L, Mark Adams, Martin Gray, Martin Kogan, Matthias McBride, Matt Ev, Matthew Thomas Cody, Max Romero, Max Traver, Michael Kramer, Michelle Fifay, Mike Dynas, Mike Staley, Nicholas Alheim, Pablo Lamothe, Paul Kean, Randy Caldwell, Relatively Geeky, Retro Revelations, Rob Kelly and his accounts, Digest Cast, Film and Water Podcast, For All Mankind, a Super Friends Podcast, Mashcast, Mountain Comics, Pod Dylan, Superman Movie Minute, The Aquaman Shrine, and Treasury Comics. Also, thanks to Roger Preeb, Rolled Spine Podcast, Sean McLaughlin, Sean Ross and the Secret Wars and Beyond Podcast, Siskoid, Slangword Scott, Tim Price, Trent Lewis, Ward Hill Terry, Warlock Thanos Podcast, Willie Yarbrough, and Zeb Oswald. My thanks to all of you for your support of the JLI Podcast. Your feedback is such a critical part of the show, folks, and the community of JLI fans we're building together is absolutely wonderful. Now, if I've forgotten or missed anyone, I am terribly sorry. It is probably the fault of Boss or Bob Fisher. If so, just drop me a note and let me know, and I'll be sure to include you on the next episode. So please keep those cards and letters coming, folks. The website is firewaterpodcast.com slash JLI. Leave your comments there on the show post. Over on Facebook, you can look for Justice League International Blah Ha Ha Podcast. On Twitter, we're at JLI Podcast, and the email is jlipodcast at gmail.com. My thanks again to Boss and Bob Fisher for helping me cover JLA number 29 and JLE number 5. And thanks to you listeners for such a great collection of feedback from that episode. Now, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break, and when we come back, we'll see if we can bring Jenny and David together in the same embassy. My name is Michael Bailey, and I like Superman. Like, a lot. Like, he's my favorite character. I like him so much that I have podcasted about the Man of Steel more than any other character. 
Back in 2017, I started a show called It All Comes Back to Superman to serve as the monthly reaffirmation of my Kryptonian faith. Well, the monthly thing hasn't worked out, but I'm hoping to change that in 2020. This year, there will be at least one episode a month of the show, and most of those will be part of a series I'm calling Superman is for Everybody. Superman is for Everybody springs from my desire to talk to people that have channeled their love and affection for the character into other avenues, like cosplay, or podcasting, or academia. New episodes will drop in the first or second week of the month, with special episodes popping up at random, because that's how I roll, apparently. It all comes back to Superman as part of the Fortress of Bailey-Tude podcasting network, which can be found at www.fortressofbailey2.com. The show is available through Apple Podcasts, the Google Play Store, and it's even on Spotify. It all comes back to Superman. Because really, it does. Give me a few minutes and I'll make the connection. Why are you walking away? I'm not done talking to you yet. Do you think of yourself primarily as a singer or as a poet? Well, I think of myself more as a song and dance man, you know. <laughs> You may call him Lucky Wilbur. You may call him Bobby. You may call him Zimmy. But the world calls him Bob Dylan. It's Pod Dylan, the only podcast dedicated to celebrating the work of Bob Dylan. Pod Dylan, hosted by the freewheeling Rob Kelly and a roster of special guests, examines Bob Dylan's discography one song at a time. Proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network, Pod Dylan is available weekly at fireandwaterpodcast.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. Okay, folks, we're back from break, and yes, it does appear the JLI teleporter has brought both Jenny and David together for us. First, Dr. Swartz Levine, my thanks to you for appearing on this episode of the show. Jenny, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find more of you or your work? All right, well, first of all, thank you, Shag. This has been an absolute delight. So thank you for welcoming me to the embassy, and I can be found on Twitter at Jennifer Swartz 2 or on Facebook at Jennifer Swartz Levine, or, you know, if people want to shoot me an email, I am probably the only Jennifer Swartz. Levine, I would assume, in the continental <laughs> United States, but I'm definitely the only one of those in the directory of the Lake Erie College website, which is lec.edu. That is fantastic, and thank you so much for being here. I have been so looking forward to having you on the show, and this this was everything I could have hoped for. The discussion of gender, the discussion of the issue, all of it has been an absolute blast, and oh, I cannot tell you how much uh, I appreciate you being here. Oh, thank you so much, Shag. I really enjoyed this, and truly, you made my day when you asked me to be on the show, and this has been so much fun. So thank you very much. I made your day. You only had to wait 18 months for that day to come. (laughs) There you go. All right. (laughs) Now, David, I kind of appreciate you appearing on the show. I mean, not really. It's been more (laughs) a burden than anything else. But since you're here anyway and you made it all the way to the end, why don't you tell the listeners where they can find you on the interwebs? Well, when you say you brought Jenny and David together, you don't mean like two Vicks, right? Like a transporter (laughs) bringing two people together. Wow. A Voyager reference this late in the day. I was not prepared for that. Let me ask you something. Do you think that episode, what they did in that was murder? Could you just tell people where to find you, please? <laughs> All right. I want to go home. Um, 
Me too. I want to, I want to go back to France. I was recently on an episode of Rock Solid, or a couple episodes of Rock Solid, a comedy show about music, the Texas Tunes episode, and where we talked about the Bohemian Rhapsody movie. I've been on a tons of, of film and water episodes by this point. That's how I became part of the Five Timers Club, so we're filming water on this network. Apparently so. Highlander, High Fidelity, Man Who Fell to Earth, and the world-famous video store episode. All right, as much as it pains me to say, that video store episode that you and Rob did was absolutely exceptional. This, where they sat around, they both worked in video stores at some point in their life, back in the 90s when Blockbuster existed, and they shared their experiences as clerks at a video store, and it was just amazing listening to it. So I highly recommend you guys seek that out under the Film and Water podcast. Yeah, and I was on an episode of Radio versus the Martians, the Highlander episode, and then I was most recently interviewed on an episode of Highlander Rewatch, the Love and Hate episode, which covered the Big Finish audio drama of the same name. Oh, okay. Very cool. Yeah. We love the Big Finish, you and me. You won't like these, but... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I'm always on on your comment board. Or what do you call it? Riding the my website. Butt, I think is actually what you meant to say. Always wanting more. Who's who? Oh my gosh! And and please uh, listen to Pod Dylan and give it a five star review. Perfect. That'll help David's uh, executive producer credentials. I do want to thank you for having me on. I know I've been kind of a pain about scheduling, and thank you for being so patient with my sabbatical and hiatus from this shag. So I appreciate it, and I appreciate you. I know it's a difficult time, so thank you very much for being you and for being my friend. Aww. Well, I appreciate you and I appreciate our friendship very, very much. I'm going to cut, edit all this out so I don't want anyone to know that I've ever said anything nice to you. But uh, I genuinely appreciate our friendship and I'm glad it has blossomed over the years. And we've had so much time together over the years. I know. Your mom's always like, hey, how's how's my son doing? Stop, stop, like, I don't stop. know. Anyway, uh, thank you, David, <laughs> so much for being on the show. Now, folks, that is going to do it. Come back next episode when we cover Justice League America number 31 and Justice League Europe number 7. It's the first big JLI crossover across both JLA and JLE issues. It's the Teasdale Imperative, and it starts next episode. It will have two more guest hosts to help me cover the issues. Who will they be? Come on, people. You know how this works by now. You're just going to have to wait and find out next episode. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time, I'm Shag. And I'm Jenny. I'm David. And you've been listening to the JLI Podcast. Want to make something of it? it?